0: Hey there Shiro listeners, Saturn Dave here reminding you that you MUST play Sega Saturn and that it's contributions from listeners like you that help keep this and our other shows hosted and available on demand. In addition to our website, segasaturnshiro.com, where you can find all of the most up to date news and information from around the Sega Saturn scene. If you'd like to show your support and gain access to several perks, visit patreon.com slash shiro media group to become a Patreon supporter. If a monthly donation isn't possible, no worries. We still value your support in liking and sharing our content on social media and joining our Discord community to become a part of the Saturn conversation. Thank you for being a loyal listener and a part of this great community. And as always, Hey everybody, it's Saturn Dave here, and thanks for joining us for an Editor's Corner. We have two guests on today, Mel, Sega Lord X, and we have James, the Sega-holic of the Sega Guys. How are you guys doing today, tonight? I'm doing great, man.
1: <laughs> doing, doing very well, Dave.
0: It is 9pm here. What time is it for you, Mel? It is midnight, just turned. <laughs> just turned, and over there in the UK? It's just turned
1: 5am. My alarm went off 40 minutes ago to get up and get ready, so... <laughs> Uh, early early night for me last night to to make sure I was nice and
0: alert for this one you got snow outside right on all the cars in our street how about you mel
2: you got snow no no snow it's just been storming all day where i'm at raining
0: yeah. yeah we had some rain too here in san diego but it wasn't that bad um actually i had brian out today from the saturn junkyard he came out on a work trip and came over we played some games you met the kids and i brought him over to uh Coronado beach. And we, 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 ended up getting really into like Sega conversation and stuff like that. But it was, it was a lot of fun. I, he had to leave early and we had to go to like a party, but it was fun. You know, it's always fun getting to meet folks in real life. Um, but yeah, pretty good weather though today in San Diego. I can't complain. So how you been doing Mel?
2: I've been doing great, man. I've, uh, you know, been chipping away at the YouTube content that I have planned and that takes up a huge amount of my time. And, you know, I've been banging away at a Shining Force 3 review. Oh, my God. And how do you do that justice, right? Oh, and you know, and that's just, that's exactly right. The
0: expectations.
2: Exactly. It's like, I want to get it right. And I'm so scared I'm going to just screw it all up, you know? Yeah.
0: Is it? I mean, well, like, if anybody's going to do it, I'm sure you're going to do it right. But it is. That's a lot of a game like that. There's a lot riding on that, right? Because it's such a phenomenal game, you know? And well, it...
2: you know, it's it's the it's the game that I tell everybody, you know, it really didn't have, in my opinion, quality-wise. It didn't really have an equal that generation, in my opinion. I mean everybody trump you know, trumpets like Final Fantasy tactics and whatnot. I think the Shining Force 3 You know, episode one, two, three, or or parts one, two, and three, however you want to look at it, you combine all three of those games, and there just isn't an equal in the 32-bit generation for that journey. And, you know, I want to make everyone realize that that is still the case. You know, look at this game and cherish it for what it was. You could only play that on the Saturn, and not very many people appreciate that, I feel.
0: It's aged incredibly well, I will say. I mean, maybe graphically yeah. it's, you know, you've got to consider the context when it when it came out and, and how Saturn does 3D and whatnot. But I mean, some of those games, like I would argue, and recently I talked to Pat about, you know, Final Fantasy VII for all that it did for the games industry and for RPGs in the West, it hasn't aged that great. It's not a game I really like to go back to. Um, these days I kind of play it and I'm like, a lot of this just hasn't really aged that well, but we were blown away by it back in the day. By comparison, Shining Force Three has aged like a fine wine, and my kids beg me to play it. Jesse begs me to play that game. He's like, "It's so much fun." I'm like, "You don't mind the janky graphics?" And he's like, "No, it's, it's charming, you know." But the game is so much fun, you know. I'm like, "Well, okay, yeah. I guess a good game is a good game, right?" It really is. <laughs> what do you think, James? Are you a fan? Yeah,
1: that's a great game. Uh, I mean, in terms of what I've been playing RPG wise, uh, I think I spoke to, you, I think it was a week there, Dave, as well, that I've been playing a bit of Vandal Hearts on the English oh, yeah. translation as well, um, which is just great fun. I think it was after you'd mentioned, I think that Nick had been speaking about it at PRG,
0: right? Um, and yeah. I
1: thought, I-, I need to try that. I need to try this out. Um, is it really got the that good, right? On
0: there. Yeah.
1: Ah, uh, sort of whatever you you take someone out, and it's just that gore. Splash up in the air. Oh, it's sure. Just, All yeah. the blood. But yeah. It's, yeah, it's just so, so satisfying. You get that last hit and then it's just... Whoosh, up it goes. Um, but no, as Yeah, the Shining Force games, you know, they have stood the test of time. You know, again, we've got like Scenario 2 and 3, mm-hmm. you know, that have come out in English translations as well. Um, but what you're saying about Final Fantasy seven there as well, it's... Again, thinking back, again, the, the UK really embraced that whole... Final Fantasy Seven, which was quite bizarre to see because we didn't have any kind of kind of burgeoning JRPG scene here.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, it
1: was like Final Fantasy Seven very much westernized that kind of genre over here. Like I've spoken on our show about. You know, my my best friend um, Sam and his his brother David, and he played that. His bedroom used to be the first door when you walked in his house, and all I could hear every time I went down to visit was that goddamn victory tune. It was no, like yeah. that was all I could hear.
0: Yeah,
1: it's like <laughs> 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 I'm like, I'm sick of hearing that. It's like that should be like your doorbell theme or something. It's oh, just yeah. like, but it, it hasn't it hasn't aged at all that well. Um, right. Again, what you said is right for what it did at the time. It, it was great, but we did a a show actually that's not went out yet because of the the kind of what we've recorded so much in advance it won't actually go out until after Christmas now, but it was um, several games that we believed could and could have come to, to Sega hardware and one was Final Fantasy VII. Mm-hmm. And we were looking at it thinking, apart from the points where you see the gameplay transition from, you know, mm-hmm. the 2D background with the 3D characters to a kind of CGI cutscene and back, Right. apart from that kind of the smoothness of that, I don't see anything in Final Fantasy VII at all that I don't think the Saturn couldn't have handled. I mean, 2D backgrounds, please, you know, mm-hmm. no no problem. Maybe the 3D characters might have looked a little bit different. They would have had that kind of nice, unique kind of Saturn-style quality mm-hmm. to them, the mm-hmm. way they would have drawn the, the 3D characters. But I think it could have quite easily done that game. Um, but... Yeah, it's it's not not one of my favorites. I have to. I would much rather play like a like a Shining Force or, as I say, Grand into Vandal Hearts. That's just an absolutely brilliant game.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think part of it just has to do with the, like the cinematics and the cyberpunk aesthetic. I don't know. I, I can't say, but back in the day, it was just really all anybody cared about and all anybody talked about. I certainly wasn't hearing people talk about <laughs> Shining Force Three back in '97. No, uh,
1: sadly, sadly world. not, no.
0: But yeah. We're
1: doing it justice now. <laughs> yeah, That's we're just... we exactly. it now. That's well, I
0: mean, I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say, Mel, about that game, and definitely it's a it's a huge responsibility to cover uh, such a sprawling epic, if you consider all three scenarios, you know, but I'm sure that uh, yeah. you're going to do it just, justice, you know. Are you going to do... Uh, ne- I hope so. Have you
2: done an in-depth uh, deep dive on, on uh, Dragon Force? I've done a pretty deep decent review of it where i went pretty deep into what was going on with the systems and right. what i thought of it
0: okay yeah because yeah. i know that's your favorite
2: right I, that is your favorite on the record oh yeah that's my absolute favorite saturn game so i was gonna review that before anything else mm-hmm. and i mean i'll just let you know i mean typically i don't like reviewing rpg games in general because mm-hmm. i don't enjoy replaying them hmm I mean, it's something that I have to explain to people. I, I get a lot of requests to review RPG games and a lot of people will email me or or message me and they're like, hey, can you review game X? You know, that happens to be an RPG adventure strategy, you know, all in that genre. And I'm like, right. man, I really, I really have no plans to do that because I just don't like replaying that type of game. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm not a fan of random encounters, and that's a lot of JRPG games, man. You know, going back and playing something like Final Fantasy VII is torture, in my opinion, because <laughs> I went through that stuff when I had plenty of time, right? When I was when I was younger, but now that I'm older, sitting there trying to get through those games, and it's just random battle, random battle, random battle. Oh my you god! Know, it's like. Fu- yeah, it's like for the love of God, man! Just let me get to the next town already.
0: Absolutely. And
2: <laughs> yeah, and I mean, and I mean, seriously, I mean, playing, replaying a lot of those kinds of games just isn't something I want to do. And but you know, Shining Force Three is a different kind of game. You don't get those random battles. It throws you into a battle scenario. Mm-hmm. And you can save it in the middle of that scenario.
0: Full disclosure, I want to tell you <laughs> something. And some folks will slay me for, for admitting this, but like even back in college, I didn't have a lot of time, right? You know, because I was taking a lot of tests, doing a lot of study, had to work, you know, because I, I moved out of my parents' house out of as soon as I was 18, right? So it was had to pay right. rent, you know. So even then I didn't have a ton of time. And when a game like Final Fantasy 12 came along, um and, and other contemporary rpgs i found myself resorting to cheats to modify the encounters on a game to modify the experience multiplier to kind of speed up gameplay and it's funny that nowadays they remaster a game like final fantasy 12 on the switch and what do they do they allow you to just do all that stuff in the menu because they know that folks just don't have time to 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 put i don't know God, I I think I dropped like between 90 and 110, 120 hours into that game back in the day. And it's just like, I don't have that kind of time anymore. You know, like, yeah, I mean, I did everything there was to do in the game and I pretty much completed it 100%. But these days I want to go back and I want to play it and experience it. But I just like... I need the reader's digest version you know to, to satisfy that nostalgia but i definitely don't want to spend that kind of time with kids and everything like that so
2: exactly
0: it's funny that they they've they figured that out that that's that that's what a lot of folks are going to do anyway i don't have to do that with with shiny force 3. i don't resort to any kind of cheats or anything the game is very well balanced it moves at a at a nice brisk pace it's it's playable and yeah no i don't i just i don't have to do any of that with shiny force 3. (laughs) yeah that's crazy but yeah you you said it right there i mean we're all old guys right (laughs) we have kids and we don't have a lot of time is yeah, who the hell?
2: The yep. <laughs> yeah, who the hell wants to sit and you know, and you know, random battle for fifty hours of their gameplay time? I mean, um, I know I don't want to do it anymore.
0: Albert Odyssey is one of those games.
2: Oh, oh my God!
0: See, I absolutely have to have cheats in order to to be able to enjoy that game at all. Um, I, I, yeah. There are good things going for it, but it's just too many random encounters, and the loading between encounters is just ridiculous. Um, so it
2: pretty, it, it ruined that game. I mean, even back in the day, I mean, even when I had time, I was just sitting there like you have got to be, you know, effing kidding me with this. I mean, I just moved on the screen, like 0.5 inches and I'm in another random battle or, you know, what the hell? Mm -hmm. And that's the thing is it's like,
0: um, game like dragon force, for example, you can just play a couple battles before you go to work or something you know you, the way that it allows you to save and and then do the the court you know you talk to your soldiers and stuff like that i forget right. what it's called but it's essentially you're able to get a couple battles in and then go to work cuz you're able to play it in such a way that it's not it doesn't require as much from you, but you're able to get a ton of enjoyment out of it. You can either just binge it and play the whole thing in a sitting, you know, or you can just play it, you know, over several days, you know, that's the one wonderful thing about how that game is made. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we want to talk about with you. I, you know, I know this is a like semi kind of like an interview where we had some questions for you, um, about your channel and about, you know, some of your opinions of Sega and stuff like that. But, uh, I, and how to transition into that? I'm not exactly sure. I was gonna let James start with the first question, I guess, just to get the ball rolling.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the first question obviously was the one that you know I'd done mentioned to you as well, David. It's the kind of the one I think you had said you wanted to kind of make the the, the kind of crux of the conversation now. Yeah. On Mel's, you know, twenty five top Sega Saturn games, he has this absolutely amazing outro, mm-hmm. which resonated with me really, really deeply. Actually, it was about the legacy of, of Sega and, obviously, the, the Saturn. And it's, um you know, it's that legacies come and go, you know, creators fade away, but it's, you know, it's uh, the experiences that impact us the most. And he says, you know, that those who didn't own or, or support the Saturn during its lifetime like to talk about sales numbers, you know, and kind of generalize the problems that Sega had as a company. Um, And the wonderful line was, you know, you had to have been there and really to, to understand what that's all about and that kind of led me down the kind of root of the question being that we're all older guys you've mentioned that already Dave we've got families time kind of constraints but Mm -hmm. we're very fortunate that we were there at a point where Sega had that impact on our lives Mm
2: -hmm.
1: in a positive way it was there to support us during kind of dark times it was there during some of our happiest times Um, and these games and systems have made such an impact on us but what I've found as well is that there is that flip side where as we're kind of going further into the the kind of the years passing by, 25 years of Dreamcast has just hit, 30 years of Saturn is next year, hmm. that there seems to be this almost, not resentfulness, but people are very eager now to throw around the term gatekeeping when it comes to people who dare to say, we were there or you had to have been there and like Mel, like yourself, like, like us at the Sega Guys we don't say that we were there because we're trying to gatekeep and trying to say that we know more than you I think what we all try to do in our respective channels is to kind of educate and inform and try and hopefully pass on mm-hmm. that passion Is why Sega meant so much to us so I think the, uh, the main question there is that has Has Mel ever f- kind of faced anything like that in terms of accusations of gatekeeping and what is the kind of overall opinion he has on that kind of topic in terms of content creators who are older, who have been around to see X, Y, and Z happen in Sega's history and trying to pass that on? Has there ever been any accusations of that sort? Um, and just kind of what is the general kind of gist around that whole topic?
2: Oh, that's a big one boy, right? I mean this is this is the nitty-gritty I said you We're, wanted hard-hitting mail so I thought you know how it goes
0: Everyone's thinking it everyone's thinking it and I, I just figured we might as well talk about it, right? Like I've played the I was there card, you know, I I've definitely have and I and I'm not ashamed to say that I was there But you're absolutely right the younger younger audiences that are coming to this console have probably seen a million talking head videos about I was there this and that and are starting to either tune it out or feel put off by it and feel, and accuse us of gatekeeping and when that's certainly like you said not the case what what do you say to that mel
2: uh boy one of the reasons why i started my channel was you know looking around on youtube there was a certain narrative when it came to sega sega was this outlier sega was this company that never lived up to nintendo it failed it no longer made consoles i mean for the last 25 years you know i mean even it started with the you know even when the dreamcast was on the market man i mean you just got this feeling that sega was playing second fiddle to everything and everybody and now that it's been gone, you know, for, you know, over 20 years, I I got to the point where I was just like, where is my narrative at on YouTube? Where is my narrative at on social media? Mm-hmm. Where is not necessarily my opinion, I mean, but rather the narrative of the Sega kid that loved what they had loved the Sega systems that they came up with, didn't feel that their games were second to Nintendo or Sony. Mm -hmm. You know, where's that narrative at? And I think you have to understand with that comes passion. Mm -hmm. When I make a video and I tell you that I love a Sega system or I love a Sega-made game, I'm doing it because I'm passionate about it. And I want you to know how I felt. I want you to know how it was for the people that owned a Sega system and loved every minute of it and didn't consider it a failure. Didn't consider its games, not up to the Nintendo standard. You know, the kids that loved the arcade ports, the kids that loved Sonic and thought it was way better than anything that Mario had on the table. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the kids that thought Final Fantasy was the best thing ever. And I mean, a uh, fantasy star was the best thing ever, and Final Fantasy didn't live up to it, not the other way around. And you have to understand that when a Sega creator, or really any creator, when you really, you know, think about it, a lot of times when they're expressing that passion, they're just trying to make you understand something that they felt felt. And not necessarily saying you can't understand it, but if you weren't there at the time, don't look at these other narratives of Sega being this garbage company that failed, but listen to my narrative and understand that there were millions of kids like me. Right. That loved Sega, that loved the games that they made, that loved their arcade games. We never saw Sega as second best. We never saw their games as having to, you know, live up to the competition around them. We felt they were the best. We felt that they that we had the best gaming experiences. And I mean, I don't really I guess you could misconstrue it into gatekeeping, like we're saying. You know, well, has it been? Have you been accused,
0: or has anybody like?
2: You know, I'm a I'm I'm a terrible person to ask that question to, man, because I'm not a social media guy. Mm-hmm. I've never been a social media guy. I don't sit on, you know, Twitter or whatever the hell you know Elon is calling it these days, right? Um, you know, I I don't you know, get on Instagram a lot and conversate with people. That isn't because I don't want to do that. It's, Mm -hmm. it's mainly just a time issue. I don't have time in my life to spend on these platforms engaged like that. And if I can, if I can't engage everybody, I kind of have the opinion that I don't want to engage anybody, Mm -hmm. you know, because I don't want to seem like I'm playing, paying favorites and whatnot. So, I mean, I've never, to my knowledge, been accused of gatekeeping. Mm-hmm. I have had a few people in the comments of the YouTube videos accuse me of being a liar and making right. up all of this there's like, There's you know, no stuff. way
0: you got what you got, or there's no way you imported oh it on day God. one. You're just like... Yeah, I mean, and I want James to chime in as well, but I I do want to say that I agree that it's like, there's a bunch of young folks, myself included. Okay. Like I was young enough that I don't actually remember the, the quote unquote eighties video game crash. Okay. Like I would have been four or something. Right. So I don't actually have a memory of that. And there are people out there who literally their experience was that there was no crash. They're like, I love video games. I loved playing video games. The only thing that happened is everything got really cheap (laughs) and I was able to buy a bunch of cheap Atari 2600 games, right? So it's like, if anything, I played more video games during that time. And then shortly after Nintendo put out the NES, right? So it was like, if you're, if you're just accessing history via Wikipedia or via several articles online, the picture you might draw in your mind is that there was this huge video game crash and that nobody cared about video games anymore but like there's several people that will chime in and say well that's just not my experience at all um it may have crashed for you know uh, parents who really didn't play games and they were thinking about buying games for their kids you know and they didn't want to invest in you know garbage titles but like for people who were like really into playing atari or something like that if anything, they had this ability to get all these games on discount, right? Because of that happening. So it's like, when I published this talk that I did, it it was like a monologue about my childhood gaming memories. One of the things that I said was that my parents, you know, got rid of the Atari 2600 because it was about the same time as like the quote unquote video game crash. Right. And my dad wasn't playing it anymore, but several people in the comments were like, yeah, I don't have any memory of a crash like to to me it was just like i just kept playing games because i was a gamer you know so it's very easy for me to believe that there's sega fans that just kept being sega fans and didn't let anything bother them you know you knew you wanted a saturn you got a saturn
2: right Yeah. yeah it's exactly how it was i mean you know even when the saturn was dying you know 97 was coming to a close here in the united states you knew sega was in trouble sure you know, it was it was unmistakable. I mean, you saw the number of games being released drop to nothing, and then when '98 started, it was basically you went to Babbage's and you were like, mm-hmm. "Can I see the Saturn release list?" And there's like what four games on it, or right. or whatever it was,
0: because it was getting harder to be a Sega fan. You know, like exactly because you you're trying as hard as you can, but you can only do so much. You know, then you have to turn to import for everything. You know. Um, yeah. and, and then of course the, there's the language barrier and everything, but yeah, I mean, I'm glad that you don't get that kind of, uh, interaction, honestly, in your comments or whatever. I just noticed that, you know, with the different generations, we've, you know, we've got the generation Xers, we've got the millennials and then, you know, gen Y and gen Z, I kind of feel like, you know, depending on where they're at and how they approach the console, it's like James and I will play the, I was there card. we're not doing it to be superior we're we're really trying to just provide context for things you know and help folks understand that it's like when you were there at ground zero it was a crazy time you know and uh Mm -hmm. you know it's like it's not exactly like what you hear in the different revisions or different versions of history on whatever youtube video you happen to be watching you know
1: yeah Yeah. mel hit the nail in the head as well you know about you know them the narrative and I think that's something as well that really is a challenge, uh, again, as we kind of move through the years, is that the amount of articles, videos, you know, different stories that have been told. I mean, look look, look at the, the things that we believed to be the norm until the fiscal 97 documents. I mean, even we got educated after that. Mm-hmm. So I love the passion in Mel's voice when he answered that question. Um, and I think that's a key word as well is, is passion. Mm-hmm. Um, as I say the fact he's not on social media that's probably a really good thing because i think then he's, he's shielding himself from because twitter x whatever it's called mm-hmm. is is a toxic place let's not lie about it it's you can be one tweet away from well, absolute yeah. mudslinging um as i say it's it's an accusation that we've had leveled at us from fellow content creators recently um regarding what we do um and that's why, again, the question kind of resonated with me a lot because I think it's, it's we're in danger of, I think, maybe being silenced. It's like you, you become almost afraid of, of of saying those words. And, and you're, again, when you don't say it. I mean, Mel, you hit the nail on the head perfectly. It's like you want to put that narrative out there. Like the episode that we did recently to celebrate Dreamcast's uh, 25th birthday, we done like a boots-on-the-ground recollection Going back to like whenever we were reading the news in Sega Saturn magazine about Dreamcast when it wasn't even called Dreamcast, Katana, Black Belt, Jural, you were getting that news coming through the excitement of that. This the screenshots of the new challenge conference with the Ida Majiri head and the, the Scud Race Tech demo and oh my god, we're getting model three in the home and that was the whole narrative around Dreamcast was model three in the home. And we wanted to try and recreate that kind of if we could to try and at least take people back to our minds eye and let them hopefully see the excitement, the anticipation, just like what the expectations were for Dreamcast at that time, because it's it's very much I think the the Sega console that's having its narrative changed the most. Like Saturn's having this amazing renaissance, and we're all Saturn guys here, and. The homebrew scene, people are doing things that we didn't think were possible with the machine. We had the Unreal demo, mm-hmm. we've spoken about Cold Case, which was one of the the games for the, the 29th um, anniversary, you know, the, the Saturn Homebrew Awards, which is absolutely amazing. They
0: get extreme. What the
1: guys yeah. done with that for one person. But Dreamcast seems to be going the opposite way, where it's all very cutesy and there's nothing wrong with 2D, but it's very kind of side scrolling. It's almost like they're, they're diluting what the Dreamcast was, whereas the Saturn's getting this massive power-up, it's like, look what I can do. This is like, I'm so much more capable. Mm-hmm. But I think what, what that thing about narrative, that we, we really, we want to find, just create a picture because, I mean, on the show that we did previously, Dave, the, the kind of Shiro-Sega guys crossover, the second one, the kind of, the, the morbid line that we, we don't want Sega's legacy of being there to go with us. Mm-hmm. You Know we, we want to pass that on, right. so yeah, it's just I think now that was a really important thing. But passion, you, you can't mistake passion for you know, arrogance or you know saying that just because you were there, you were superior. We're not superior to anybody, what we are is experienced, mm-hmm. and I think that that experience is something that you know we've got a kind of duty as, as Sega fans and content creators to pass that on to let people know what it was like.
0: And I know like looking back on uh, Mel, the first interview that we did years ago uh, when you were just rebooting your channel, uh, what y- y- when right. I asked, you know, why did you start the channel in the first place? You basically said, I couldn't find anybody on YouTube talking about, you know, Sega the way that you'd find like just channel after channel talking about Nintendo or talking about Sony, you know, it was like, so, so you're like, needed to fill a void, you know, I mean, I guess it's, it's hard for people to believe that there are, there are people out there like you that had such a Sega experience, you know, I'm kind of jealous, honestly, because I'm, even though I was quote unquote, there kind of towards the tail end of Saturn, I definitely had to experience more of the failure than I did of the success, you know, Right. even when I went into, you know, one of my first jobs, you know, in retail, trying really hard to sell Dreamcasts you know because i believed in this in the system so much and and felt that it was so much superior to the PlayStation 2 in terms of what it would offer you out the gate you know I mean, I knew that the PlayStation 2 would catch up eventually, but when it came to, like, what you got for the money, it was just, like, you had Dreamcast with all these amazing games, even at launch, an amazing stellar launch, and then on PlayStation, you had, like, Fantavision, right? And you had, like, uh, you had Ridge Racer and stuff like that, some of those early titles, but it just... So you had a DVD player, but it was like, that's all people cared about. And it was so frustrating, you know, working at Circuit City, trying to sell people on the Dreamcast and instead, you know, seeing them pick up the PlayStation 2 instead, just because it had a DVD player. I was like, yeah, okay. Um it was frustrating, honestly. So, I mean, yeah, it's great to hear your stories because it's a much more optimistic, honestly, uh, you know, reminiscing from what I remember. It was, it was quite bleak at times, you know? Yeah. But yeah, that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. And that doesn't mean that it's any less valid. You know, it's like all of our experiences are valid. I always like to take Nick Pandemonium as an example of someone who, you know, he jokes that he was in diapers when the Saturn came out. Right. (laughs) But here, (laughs) but here he is digging up the history and the stories of the developers who made these games and his passion is in, you know, telling these stories and archiving the history, you know, preserving the history and, you know, and it proves that you didn't have to be there to still love the console and to still you know sing its praises and stuff you know and get folks excited about playing these games you know like audi we recently did a, a podcast with audi sorley and he he admitted that after after watching the virtual cop video that nick did he went out and bought a copy of virtual cop because he had always written it off as like oh it must just be um, you know a simple port just like the the pc version which i already have you know or the ps2 re-release that he had and um no in fact it turns out that the development of that game was incredible you know it was like a bunch of young amateurs <laughs> like you know? amateurs basically <laughs> yeah they were getting their shot at, at game development for the first time and they just kind of had to figure out how to make stuff work you know so it, it was...
1: like he walks in and goes yeah you're, you're going to make Virtual cop right how many projects have you had before nothing that's cool. You, you, yeah, you just,
0: just go for that. Oh, my God. Like, you know, Sega is so careless. What a, what a careless company Sega is. <laughs> I, I realized that that was what separates them from Nintendo. If you look at Nintendo and their history as a company making cards and making uh, toys and stuff like that, they, Nintendo, in their nature, in their DNA, they're just a very conservative, patient company that focuses on craftsmanship, just honing this craft over time, right, and always playing their cards really close to the chest pun intended i guess so they did cards um they got into games and stuff like that but always very conservative where sega you know david rosen you know they they were always taking risks and they were always being very very careless you know and sometimes it didn't pay off but a lot of times it did pay off but it was part of their dna it was part of what made sega sega you know it was just, they were just so different of a company than nintendo you know but but yeah like that they would make a decision like that like oh here just take a bunch of folks who have never made a game before and put them in a room together and have them sleep under their desks and figure out how to make, how to make this game, you know? But
2: yeah, I'd like to just say this to anybody that has ever felt that, you know, one of us is trying to gatekeep or trying to push you out of understanding. That really is the last thing we want. We want you to understand. Mm -hmm. We want you to, you know, experience what we experienced. And a lot of times you really do have to look at it through our eyes and that is when history is told by the people who weren't there it has a tendency to have everything that made it special washed away from it mm-hmm. when you watch when when you watch these countless videos on youtube about why Saturn failed, why Dreamcast mm, failed, why yeah. Sega failed, why, you know, Sega failed, Sega failed, Sega failed. I mean, when you type in Sega, Sega is on YouTube is about 25% top 10 videos and about 75% why they? Failed. Why did it fail? <laughs> and yeah, most of them are I mean, wrong
0: it, as we know now, right? Because like they're completely <laughs> like, it, right. it, we know so much more now, of course, but it's just insane. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. It's like, all those videos are just like reading Wikipedia, you know?
2: And and I mean, yeah. And that's the reason why a lot of us are so passionate. And we want you to understand that sometimes that narrative that is just blanketing YouTube and smothering YouTube Mm -hmm. isn't necessarily the way it was or the way it, you know, was for everyone else. Certainly not for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. And we're trying to get that out there. Like, Hey, Hey, You know, this was my experience. This was how I saw everything. Mm -hmm. Not that I'm trying to say you can't understand it, but rather I'm screaming at you, please understand it. Yeah.
0: Please understand that everybody had kind of a different experience, you know? Yeah. And um, what you end up hearing as like the history is like the loudest one. Or like the the most publicized, which is like Sega or Saturn in the US, right? I'm sure Japanese fans are sick of hearing, seeing those videos too. They're just like, okay, yeah, those silly <laughs> Americans, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, first of all, they did not want to get on board with us when we when we said, let's move on, right? From the Genesis or the Mega Drive and, and you know, support this new console, you know, they didn't want to. And then after that, they go on this tirade about how much it failed not over here. I mean, if you isolate the West entirely and don't have that ball and chain pulling the company down financially, I mean, Sega did quite well in Japan. Uh, Saturn did quite well in Japan and would have been a close second, you know, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with playing second, you know, I mean, sure. Sony had always had more money and were able to do a bunch of manufacturing in house. So you were never going to beat, beat that. But, uh, But it's like you said in one of your videos being second doesn't mean being a loser you know it just means being you're you're second place it's a perfectly fine way to make money you know the gamecube was dead last in that in that generation you know i mean there's been times when nintendo and sony and and microsoft have like jockeyed for position you know but now of course nintendo's doing quite well for themselves but you know it doesn't mean failure to not be in first place you know so Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, the deal that the U.S. made, you know, was like really a nail in the coffin, honestly, Uh, unfortunately, because it really did lose the company millions, hundreds of millions, actually, so. But yeah, you know, this is kind of wrapping this question up as well. There are so many times where we repeat ourselves about certain things and, or we think that we've said something enough times that we don't need to say it anymore, but then I'll always find some person who doesn't take this information for granted and they don't know these things. Case in point is my, my brother-in-law just started uh, playing Saturn. He actually got into Saturn because he was listening to the Shiro podcast um, which I was deeply touched by that. And he, he's, he picked up a Saturn and started playing with his daughter, but he immediately was like, he called me up and he's like, so Saturn, it's kind of expensive, right? (laughs) I was like, yes. (laughs) And he's like, yeah, I noticed that the games are kind of out of reach, you know? And I was like, yeah, okay. He's like, so I I went ahead and got a satiator. I was like, really? Okay. Wow. I I was, uh, I was impressed. He easily could have gotten just like a pseudo cart no but he went all the way he was like well I heard you talk about it so much I figured it must be the thing to do so he got a satiator (laughs) and he sent it to me uh to have me fill it up with a bunch of goodies which I which I was more than happy to do but he said you got to explain to me though like I love racing games you know and he loves to fix up cars and stuff like that he's a good driver um but he was like but I'm terrible at Sega Rally like I can't get I can't get into it and I was like, really? That's really surprising because Sega Rally is just like, it's so well made and it controls so well. He's like, yeah, I don't know. I just can't get the timing. And I was like, really? And then he's like, yeah. And I was also playing Mist, and it just looks like garbage on my TV. And I'm like, wait a second. Are you plugging your Saturn directly into your TV? He's like, yeah. I was like, okay, well, there's your problem right there. You know, first of all, oh yeah, <laughs> you, you, you're going to have tons of latency and you're and, you know, it's going to look like garbage, you know, because of the unnecessary de-interlacing. So, again, I'm a nerd and I know this stuff. We we know all this stuff and we take all this stuff for granted. But someone who's been just basically focusing on modern gaming up to this point and now has just started to dip their toe back into retro gaming and chooses Saturn as, as their console you know, to get back into it. It's like I can't take for granted that there are people like that probably a lot more than the nerds, you know, that, or, you know, like us that know all this stuff and you just need to be patient with them and, and explain to them. Yeah. It's like, okay, you need to scale it. You need to up, you need some kind of upscan solution. So I just told them get like a rad two X or something, you know? Yeah. So anyway, I'm just saying like, it, I don't, uh, if folks like get like a level hike cable, That works too for getting RGB onto your monitor. I don't recommend them because I don't think that the end experience is going to be that great, but if that's all you can afford and that's how you want to dip your toe in and, and at least be able to access Saturn's RGB... I'm not going to gatekeep and, and, and you know, judge your choice to get like a level hiker or, or a, there's a million other clones of that cable. You know, that it's basically just oh, Saturn, yeah. Saturn to HDMI. Hy- Hyperkin, yeah, the Hyperkin, the level hike, the pound cables, they're all basically the same thing. And honestly, from a latency standpoint, it's probably not much better than just plugging it into your, your LCD. You know, uh, it's still got quite a bit of latency, but you are getting to see RGB you know, which is a sight to to behold, you know.
2: Well, I I tell everybody the same thing. It really depends on what you play when it comes to the type of thing that, you know, the type of connection you want. You know if, if you're gonna play rpgs and stuff i think a level hike solution is fine true i mean you don't you don't need you know twitch reflexes to go play dragon force or mm-hmm. shining force 3 mm-hmm. now if you're sitting if you're sitting here telling me that you want to access those great japanese shoot 'em ups you know the last thing you want right is a level hike cable you know right it, it really it really does greatly depend on what you're playing on the saturn and we
0: don't i don't tell people to avoid those because i am trying to be judgmental or be elitist like oh that's not it's because i want you to have the best experience possible and i i seriously don't believe that those devices are going to give you the best experience possible you know but you're you are right it it does depend on the game that you're playing so if you are playing like a a game like mist it'll probably be fine or if you're playing an rpg anything slow is going to be fine with a level height cable. Um, And and some folks are, some folks honestly are perfectly fine with it. Like they don't, they they use it even for shooters and they don't know the difference or they don't observe the difference. So,
2: Oh yeah. I've I've had those conversations where they'll tell me that uh, their level height cable is 100% fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and maybe they're just used to the lag, you know, maybe the, it's, yeah. it's possible. I mean,
0: because when you, because nowadays you got the switch, right. And even the, the joy cons are connected via Bluetooth. So you have some inherent lag, right. And so right. maybe folks have become so accustomed to some lag that when you are using a wired controller on a Saturn, but you're, but you've got the level height cable, giving you some lag, there's just like this inherent We're kids of the '90s. We we grew up on Twitch gaming, right? So we know that I know the the difference. I feel the difference, especially on something like nights. It's like I notice if there's any lag on nights at all, because because I go from being like a phenomenal player to being like a pretty crappy player at nights. Like I'm just like, wow, I suck (laughs) at this right now. Um, but yeah, no, it's so anyway. Again, like anytime we recommend something or we we say that you should you know, look at it this way. It's only because we want to enhance your enjoyment of this console and we want you to get the best experience possible. Like I, that was the thing. I was like, Dave, my brother-in-law's name is Dave. I was like, you've got to get yourself like a rad two X or some kind of solution so that you can enjoy the Saturn because otherwise you're going to think I'm a liar. You're going to think I'm crazy for having a Saturn podcast because all these games are <laughs> look like garbage and they play with like this incredible lag. No, it, it that's, that's not what we experienced back in the day, playing them on a CRT, I can tell you, you know? Yeah. But... Uh,
1: oh, the rad's a great cable, absolutely, but I've had one for, what, about a year
0: now? Or just a CRT,
1: you know? I've tried to... The thing is, it's like, see CRTs, right? It's like, if if you go on Facebook Marketplace... Yeah. um, And you look at, like, down in England, it's like, they give them away. Like, I'm talking about, like, 32-inch, like, widescreen Vega, Trinitrons, like... are free to pick up and then you come up to scotland and it's like that'll be 200 pounds please it's like in scotland it's like we (laughs) seem to have yeah we 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 know we know what we've got up here basically it's like
0: (laughs) same thing in california there's no everything is a gaming tv here even (laughs) even if it's a cheap like i don't know what's the cheapest like a 13-inch Memorex Target special it's or something about like that. NVHS. It's got it's a nothing but composite, but it is a gaming TV. Everything on offer up is a gaming TV. But I tell you, a couple yep. of years ago, I was going on a walk. There's a little old lady that lived down the street, and she put a wood grain 1980s wood grain gold star TV, which is basically LG, you know? Put it on the curb, and it looked like a little old granny owned it because there wasn't a scratch on it. There wasn't a lick of dust on it. I mean, the thing was superb. It was immaculate. It looked like maybe she watched one show, like maybe she watched Wapner or something like that. But I mean, like literally this TV was just preserved, right? And I just had to have it. I didn't need it. I didn't have space for it, but I was just like, look at this beautiful thing. And I brought it home and I hooked my Genesis up to it. And the only thing it had was RF. So I popped in NBA Jam over RF and I had to tweak the contrast and the color and everything. But you know what? It still played like nba jam and it was it was amazing i was like you know i guess it really doesn't matter like if you have the best image fidelity or if you have like this is what i remember from when i was a kid i sure i sure played games on rf you know i played my genesis on rf it wasn't until like the super nintendo that my dad picked up a pair of composite cables and, and he was like this is the next big thing dave composite <laughs> <laughs> right there do you remember that time the time when it was like we we graduated from rf to composite and that was like a big deal yeah anyway let's
1: say, say you go over here decided to put like an rgb scart cable and with the saturn as a default but like not many kids had like RGB SCART TVs, like Dan on, on our show, he's like, he remember when he got his Saturn for Christmas, in like Christmas 96, and uh, also he's opened it up, and the TV in his bedroom's not got SCART, so he had to wait to get access to the big telly in the, the living room, mm-hmm. before he could hook it up, and actually play, you know, he played Virtua Fighter 2, and full RGB on his his parents mm-hmm. TV in the living room, and it was like oh, this is amazing <laughs>
0: Mel, what was your setup back in, like, 95?
2: Oh, 95, I was S-Video all the way. Oh, my God, you were so cool. Oh, yeah. You had yeah. S-Video. Yeah. Ac- That's crazy. Actually, we had a uh, electronics store here called Curtis Mathis, and I bought a lot of the stuff that I bought through them. And they had a television that was setting there and it's like, you know, you know, they had this placard that was above it, just extolling all of these fantastic features. And it was talking about S video. And of course I knew what S video was at that point, because, you know, the, uh, super Nintendo had had an S video cable available for it, but I had never had a TV that would use it. Not in the U S though. So- right. Like the, did they have a domestic S video cable? Oh yeah. Dang. I was just too young to know that. Oh yeah, they did. But you know, I didn't have a television that would use it. So when I saw this TV, it was like one of the first times I had ever seen a television that actually had S video on the back of it. And, you know, I went ahead and I got it. And when I first hooked up my Saturn, of course it was just with the composite cables. Yeah. And of course, when I got this TV, you know, it was like, oh my God, what a difference. And it really was a hell of a difference. S video, of course, isn't as sharp as RGB, but but I mean, it's incredibly, it's, yeah, it's a whole lot better than composite. Wouldn't so. you say it
0: gets you like 90% there? Like you have diminishing returns the farther you go, right? Yeah. You go S video component, and then it's like SCART RGB. It's that little bit more. But I mean, the difference between composite and S video is huge.
2: It really is.
0: I didn't know about S video till like the 2000s with the PS2. Like I got a, yeah, I guess I was just like really slow on the uptake. But one thing I did notice walking into a game store, In like late 99 or early 2000 and Electronics Boutique had a Dreamcast on display hooked up to a VGA monitor. And that blew my mind because that was like HD before we had HD, right? Like seeing the Dreamcast via VGA for the first time, I was just like, oh my God, I've never seen anything this sharp. It's going to cut my face.
2: (laughs) Oh, hey, I've got a story for you on that. Sure. When I bought my Dreamcast and then the uh, VGA box came out for it, I was so excited for that. I took my Sony 19-inch Trinitron, mm. I took it off of my computer, went to the store and bought a cheap little crappy monitor for my computer. <laughs> for your computer. So that I could then set my nice 19-inch oh my Trinitron you know for my dreamcast specifically that's how dedicated i was boy oh
0: man you really were like the super fan <laughs> i all i can i can definitely see how some folks would be like no you didn't <laughs> you really did have like the optimal experience you know importing games as early as you did because you got you started importing what with the pc engine was it that got you into importing and yeah and then you imported. actually
2: the very the very first game i ever imported if i remember right i think it was strider back in 90. right and uh then of course i jumped you know into pc engine i got a super graphics eventually You know, I even dabbled with the Super Famicom a bit Mm. and that rolled me, of course, right on into the Saturn when that was launched. So Mm. you know, luck you know, luckily I still talk to my best friend at the time and I have been trying to get him to come on my channel so we can talk about that stuff man because he's like the only living person yeah who can like you know corroborate all of this stuff like hey man you know i am totally not a liar here's my best bud and he was there during all of that Mm -hmm. so he could like you know we could talk about that and really let you know you know because he was a big part of that i mean without my best buddy Nathan at the time, I mean, I wouldn't have played or owned half the stuff I did because we did it kind of like a tandem thing. Mm -hmm. I would buy this game. He would buy that game. I would buy this controller. He would buy that controller. You know, and we sort of tag team the, you know, the Saturn and the Dreamcast during those early years to where we played so many of their games so early because we were importing everything we possibly could. And a lot of people don't understand that part of the story where I wasn't doing this stuff alone. I had a lot of help from a couple of different friends Who were helping me get this, you know, access to a lot of this stuff.
0: So quick question then. I don't know if you've done a video about... Well, you probably have, but I'll be the first to admit I haven't watched all of your videos because there are quite a few. (laughs) But but I want you to speak on how you feel about the quote-unquote Model 1 U.S. controller. Uh, Of course, I know you love the Japanese pad, and I know that's what you got day one because you imported a Japanese Saturn, so that's what you would have got. Yeah. Um, But I'm just curious how
2: you feel about this. Uh, You know when... When the surprise launch of the Saturn, you know, hit the U.S., I remember uh, a friend of mine that worked at Babbages called me up and said, "Hey, we've got the Saturn," and I was like, "You know, you lying mf'er. You know, you have no Saturn. It's May. You know, this thing isn't due out for months." And he was, "No, I'm being serious." And I went in and I saw that thing on the shelf. I was so blown away by, you know, what what had Sega done? They just completely 180 ed all of their plans, mm. you know, to, to stick to their release date and here, the thing is on the shelf. Nobody knew about it. And then of course I'm looking at the box, like what the hell is that? <laughs> you know? And you know, uh, the guy that worked at Babbage's, his name was Dave too, by the way. Yeah. He decides to crack open the box and show us the controller and I'm holding this monstrosity in my hand. Right. And I'm like, what have they done to my to my Sega Saturn controller? What are these crap shoulder triggers? Oh, no kidding. What is going on with the directional pad? Why does the directional pad have circles on each point? Oh. <laughs> you know, it's just like, oh my God, they've ruined it. You know, yeah, that that controller, I know that it has its fans because that was the first controller.
0: Yeah. that
2: they had for their Saturn, but going from a Japanese controller to that controller, oh boy, I you couldn't do it. I don't think it was possible. That had to be your first controller for you to appreciate it. You know, that's how I feel about it.
0: Was it was my first controller and I don't appreciate it. Oh, well, there you go. Like Like you got, I own it. I own it. I have to own it, right? Nostalgia being what it is and everything like that. But it's more like I I remember the the trauma. You know, I have PTSD over having to use this controller. (laughs) And frankly, even as a kid, I knew something was wrong. I was just like, "Wait, these shoulder buttons feel like crap. They feel like garbage." Because we, we were coming to this from the SNES shoulder buttons, and I was like, "Okay, the SNES has like proper shoulder buttons. These feel like little clickety. I don't know. They're just terrible."
1: Dave, all I can all I can hear is is clicking, uh, like creaking. That's all I can hear is like from that controller. It's like even the cheapness is coming through the mic. It's like is it? You can hear you. Could you the, creaking, hear that? The, the,
0: the creaking noise. Okay, well, I, I'm not going to edit that out. Folks are going to have to endure it with us. But yeah, so, I mean, it's just everything about it just feels wrong, though. Yeah, I, I, yeah, you're right. It has it has its fans, but I definitely, I don't get it. I mean, because it, it, I think we can all agree, like, the Japanese Saturn pad is, like, the greatest game controller ever made.
2: Yeah, the only thing I can figure is, is that the skies at Sega of America are so hating on the Saturn at this point. They were just complaining about everything. You know, they were just like, you know, they hated the idea of the Saturn. They hated that their ideas for... The next generation console were rejected and they were just like, this controller is just simply too small for American hands. We got to make it fatter. We got to make the buttons, you know, everything's got to be bigger on it. You know, they were just doing it. They were just, you know, taking a piss at that point where you, they were just wanting things to be different. (laughs) The juke before
0: the juke. I can't imagine how annoyed Sega of Japan was. They were just like, those crazy Americans, why? even when they later asked can you make us uh, uh, the the uh pluto right which was going to be like this 500 you know monstrosity of a you know netlink pack in online console and everything and they're building it and they they even wrote on the board i don't know what this garbage is or like this system is garbage <laughs> they like agreed to make like a couple just to shut seg of america up but there's just like there's no way we're gonna sell this we can't you know we can't make it and and sell it and have it make sense you know so it was just funny but Sega of America like they would complain and they would ask for certain things like oh can you change they wanted to ch- what was it in those recent documents they, they wanted to change nights to make it more edgy for for Western audiences and I bet Naka was just like not on your life buddy you're not changing my game oh no chance <laughs> no, no chance <laughs> Yeah, that's crazy. You know,
2: Se- Sega of America, man, could be a, a four-hour episode on just... Do it. <laughs> I mean, for the love of God, man. You know, people, you know, it's because of those books that were written mm-hmm. some years ago about Sega's history, you know, where so much of that narrative was focused on the American branch. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it, di- it it didn't fairly... You know, give the Japanese branch any of the same amount of time that the American branch was given for their narrative about how they saw how that all that played out. So everybody has this belief that Sega of Japan was this awful, terrible entity and Sega of America had all these right ideas that were rejected and... Mm -hmm. I mean, I scoff at that, man, because if you look at, and especially with the leaked stuff that came out not too long ago, I don't think Sega of America knew what the hell they were doing half the time. And I think it's really important that people understand that everything that was a success for the Sega Genesis came from Japan. Everything. Every game that sold well came from Sega of Japan in regards to the stuff sega itself made Mm -hmm. but everything successful came from that japanese arm because they knew how to make games sega of america didn't know how to make games sega of america paid other companies to make games for them Mm -hmm. and there's a huge difference there and it's something you have to understand Sega of America had this bright idea that they wanted the, you know, the chipset that powered the N64 Mm -hmm. to be the, what was in the Saturn or whatever they would have called their next gen machine. Right. Well, the, the truth of that is, is that Sega's entrenched, you know, um, investments With, you know, the company that made the SH2 went back years before. Right, they had
0: relationships. Sato.
2: Right, (laughs) exactly. They had relationships. Sega of America was basically saying to Sega of Japan, forget about all your business ties. Forget about all your investments. Dump it all. Dump all your R&D. And just go with our bright plan of this, you know, device. And mm-hmm. it's like, you know, you listen to Tom Kalinsky talk like Sega of Japan was just this bunch of morons. And you're sitting there thinking to yourself, dude, did you even know what your own company was actually, you know built on and how it ran and how it worked or were you just sitting in california patting yourself on the back because you put sonic in the box
0: well the truth is whether he liked it or not uh nakayama he gave tom like a blank check to do what he wanted to do right and there's that whole story about how they sat in the boardroom and everybody hated the idea and, and Nakayama went over to him and, and translated for it. He's like, well, they all hate your idea and then they think you should go back home. But he's like, but I told you that you could do whatever you wanted to do. And so I'm going to, you know, stand by that decision. Right. At the same time, Sega of America was always beholden to Sega of Japan for the software. So it was like, they were basically just putting on those documents like, oh, and Sega of Japan will probably give us virtual fighter three at some point. You know, they're, they're, they're just gonna get, they're just gonna keep churning out these games, right? Cause they, but, but like they're waiting for Sega of Japan to send them stuff because they're not making any of it themselves. They're calling all the shots and they're pushing their weight with the marketing and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, it's Sega of Japan that's making everything. If Sato was to say yes to Silicon graphics, they would lose pretty much like the only control that they did have you know that was the one thing that sega of japan did have is that they made the consoles and they made the games the hard wheel That's like the autonomy and the control that they did have. If they gave up that, they would have nothing. It would be like Sega of America would just be like calling all the shots, you know? Yeah. And so I think that, yes, the relationships were very important, but I also think that Sato knew that it's like, he didn't want to give that part up. He made Sega consoles, you know, that's what he did, you know, and to completely go with like an American company for the, the tech as well. It just would change the DNA of the console.
2: It wasn't just, you know, that either. It was the whole Sony part of that story that boggles the mind, too. Mm. There is a reason Nintendo didn't want to work with Sony. There's a reason. And it's because Sony wanted a measure of control Nintendo did not want to give them. Sure. And you have to understand, it was very true that Sega would have been faced with that same scenario Mm -hmm. sony would have wanted a measure of control and sega of course wasn't just gonna you know oh here you go sony you go ahead and you make all of this hardware right and we'll make the games for it and then what control at that point does sega have Mm -hmm. sony could have said to them anything at that point once that deal was made and sega would have had no legs to stand on To counter any of it. You know, Sony would have controlled that generation, not Sega. Mm -hmm. Sega would have been relegated to a third party. Absolutely. And that's that again, man, is something you really have to take into account. Sega saw itself... As a hardware manufacturer, Mm -hmm. it it was spun off of their arcade division. They believed in making their own hardware, Mm -hmm. period. The games were then made for that hardware. They controlled everything, start to finish. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to give that up to anybody. They didn't
0: want to lose themselves.
2: Exactly. So you have to really understand that to really, you know... Hey, Tom Kalinsky, I understand you didn't like Saturn. You said it wasn't going to work. I I actually appreciate that, man, because I think they should have probably listened to Sega of America Mm -hmm. a little more in terms of what was going to sell in the U.S. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, expecting Sega to just give up all of this control. You have to really understand that Sega was never in a position to do that, want to do that, or even able to do that.
0: Ironically, the same thing would happen a few years later when Sega had the opportunity to acquire Bondi and it was going to go through and there was going to be like this merger or acquisition. And all of the workers at Bondi were like, no, they went to the upper management and they were like, we do not want That's this. Right. We are going to lose our identity as a company if we let Sega buy us or, or you know, they're going to be calling all the shots and we're not going to be what makes us us, you know? You know, we're going to lose ourselves. And, and so, yeah, every company, I think, comes to that point where they're kind of asking themselves do we really want to make this decision what will we turn into you know you're absolutely right though it's like i don't blame sato for feeling that way honestly the the silicon graphics it was hard to work with anyway even nintendo A lot of those developers had difficulty programming some of those games. There were certainly some uh, obstacles that they faced in having to make games using that architecture.
2: Well, Sega would have put a CD CD drive in it anyway, and the thing would have cost $500.
0: Oh, God, yeah. It would have been unreachable, (laughs) you know? But yeah.
2: It's It's like the old Steve Jobs quote. You know,
1: people who are really serious about software should make their own hardware. I think that's what it comes into with Sega. They they had the the arcade hardware. They had the games they wanted to bring over. It was just mm-hmm. the home systems were always just about okay. They were downscale, but it was bringing that experience into the home. So yeah, if if that whole Silicon Graphics deal and when we spoke to Tom as well, like he told that story, you know, about him and uh, Olofsson, from From Sony had come up with this deal that, you know, would make this system together and would would share revenue in the software and it's like you're listening and you're going, no, that Sony would want to control mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. That, that again, that's why Nintendo shout on them essentially, you know, and give them that kind of showing up at the was it the was it Tokyo Game Show or what was it the the the, the trade show that they they basically. Turned back on Sony. Um right. I, I just that that would never have worked. That would just have completely because people. I think you go to hear about this whole the potential of a Sega PlayStation and mm-hmm. what that would have done. And you know, if, if and we kind of over romanticize and maybe think about well, maybe if Sega had done that deal, the PlayStation as we know it wouldn't exist. Mm-hmm. And Sega would still be
0: here. But I think should have could have. it Aye,
1: exactly. And I think it's like no. The 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 reality is is that sony with their financial clout would have taken top of the food chain and sega would yeah. have literally it would have been like yeah we've got all your creativity and you'll just make games for us um, mm-hmm. i think the hierarchy would have would have definitely taken hold
0: yeah yeah i mean anybody who paired up with sony would have been successful but would they have been arguably sega anymore you know, nope. no, they, it, they would just be absorbed, basically. Yeah, And that, and that's the thing is Sega, they, they were proud enough of their own heritage as a company that, you know, they they had accomplished a lot. And at one point, Kutaragi came to Sato and offered him a deal, offered that, you know, because they would have dinner together and he would just say, like, look, you're going to lose and you know it. We can spend you under the table you know we we just have money for days you know and we have our own factories so you there's just no way you're gonna win this um but we're friends and everything and we'll give you fair treatment if you come and be a third party for us you know um and sato said that they just there was just too much pride you know when it came to the the success of the mega drive in america and they felt like Yeah, we could do that, but we feel confident and we feel proud of what we've made. And I think that we want to try to make a 32-bit console that's going to compete, you know. And uh, that was the decision they made, you know. I mean, whether it was a success or failure in anybody's book, I think that, you know, they were true to themselves, you know. And they, they stuck with doing things the way that they did things, which was they wanted to continue to bring the arcade experience home, you know.
2: People really need to look at it from their own personal, you know, standpoint. Imagine if you owned a business and ran a business for however many years, 10, 20 years, and you had been, you know, you had had your ups and downs, but you were mostly successful. Mm -hmm. You know, you had been your most successful recently when some new business moved into town Mm -hmm. and the guy that owns the business comes and knocks on your door and says, we want to join forces with you, you know, and you can sell your products in our store and we're going to take over advertising and, you know, we're going to be your, your retail, you know, channel for getting everything. And, you know, we want to take over. And then you sort of are in a position of, is all this that I worked for worth giving up just so i can have a shot at success or do i want to stand my ground and fight for the business that i've worked so hard for and that was sega's japanese management sega's Mm -hmm. japanese management is like hey we're the one that got the company back from Gulf western we're the one that joined forces with csk we're the ones that started you know putting out these arcade games that were cutting edge we started putting out home consoles that were selling well in various parts of the world we grew this sega company that was basically bits and pieces for you know 30 40 years of other companies sort of coming together to eventually become this and now we're in control of it we have the investment in it. We have the blood, sweat, and tears to make it work. Right. And then some American dude shows up and says, hey, give it all up because Sony says they're going to kick our ass if we don't join them.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, come on, man. I mean, you, you're you going to stick and fight because you think your product can compete. Mm-hmm. You know, S- Sega wasn't sitting there, man, and going, oh, let's reject this idea because it's coming from you know, a competitor or it's coming from, you know, the, the idea is coming from an American or 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 you know, whatever, you know, ridiculous idea people have, they rejected it because they wanted to make the fight. They wanted it to put the gloves on. They mm-hmm. want it to go toe to toe. They wanted their product to succeed because they thought it could succeed. They believed that it could. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And
0: they knew that their values as a company weren't necessarily echoed by these other companies. You know, it was like they wanted to be all about communications. You know, it was always pushing communications. Networking was very important. Uh, you had it all the way back on with the mega modem. You had it with the net link. You had it with the dreamcast. They were very big about technology, pushing technology, pushing communications, bringing the arcade experience home, all of that. And I think that they felt that they would lose that if they went with a company like Sony, you look at Sony's track record with their image soft games and stuff like that. It didn't, it was nothing like what Sega was all about as, as a company. You know, they had this arcade pedigree that even Nintendo couldn't touch. You know, um, it was just like, they were the Kings of the arcade. In my opinion, Sega are the undisputed Kings of the arcade. Namco comes close, but it's just Sega. Nobody does it better. Nobody did it better. That's who they were as a company even when they tried to make a you know home game console you couldn't deny that it bled through you know the arcade heritage bled through
2: yeah and you know that's another thing that's a, actually a good point if you think about it let's say sega had a uh... You know, decided, hey, we're gonna join forces with you, Sony, and we're gonna put our games on there. And what happens if the Sega games didn't sell well on the PlayStation?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: What was the plan then for Sega? What what exactly were they expected to do? Let's say that you know they uh, you know Virtua Fighter would have sold well on the PlayStation no matter what, because Virtua Fighter was really popular then. But you know, Virtua Fighter, you know, popularity began to die down really heavily with Virtua Fighter 3. So by the time Virtua Fighter 3 comes out, all of a sudden Sega is struggling to sell, you know, software on the PlayStation. Where does it go from there? It has no home hardware to turn to. It has nothing r and that it can release in the future. Mm. There's no Dreamcast at this point because, of course, they've joined forces. Right. You know, there's a very real possibility that Sega could have still failed just on the prospect of arcade gaming. You know, in general, seeing a decline in popularity, who said that their games were going to sell well for any given of time for any given time on the PlayStation. So I don't know, man, Th- that was not a silver bullet. You know, it was not guaranteeing anything. And like you said, man, you know, Sega won at that fight because they thought they could win it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And because as a company, the console market was only part of their business. Yeah. You know, they were an amu- arcade amusement company at their core the console business was like the add-on part yeah so um yeah i can definitely see why they had that fight in them
1: you know it's uh, at the end of the day and i think we, we touched on this again whenever we had peter on the the collab show we did but it's like sega yeah they were a, a business and they wanted to make money but at the heart they were all passionate game creators everyone in the company was a game creator even your your kind of your your businessmen, there was still a, a knowledge of gaming a passion for gaming in there and I think that that's what led to them wanting to have that, that kind of fight. They were proud of their product, they were proud of their software. They felt that their hardware was optimal to to bring their games home and that they believed in it. And, you know, again, it's that it is that whole kind of perhaps that Japanese kind of pride thing as well. It's like, yeah, we we, we know that, you know, you've got your your plants and your your factories to build C D ROMs and your your SOCs and you can do it cheaper than us, but We've got a product, and we believe in it, and we think it's the optimal way to bring our customers, our games in the best way. So you've got to respect them for that.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, you you really do.
0: And I mean, in the right hands, the Saturn is incredibly powerful. Oh. I argue that, you know, the Yamaha, the VDP-2, is like their ace in the hole, you know. You there's just some there's just a t- sauce. There's John Lennon called it. There's just some stuff that you just can't do on the PlayStation be- without that VDP two. You know, I think Grandia is a great example of that, right? And of course, like the most frustrating thing, and I even remember this back in the day when I was there, was that a lot of my friends would compare ports. You know, you would, they would compare like a PlayStation game ported to the Saturn it was never fair because the same thing would be said for a game that was native to the Saturn ported over to PlayStation. It wasn't as good. It was almost never as good on the PlayStation if it, if it came from the Saturn and the same would be said for a game that was programmed specifically for the PlayStation. When it got ported over to the Saturn, there was just sacrifices that had to be made because of the way that the consoles handle 3D differently. Yeah. You know, unless they, they took the time to build it from the ground up and really utilize uh, Saturn's VDP2. Oftentimes it just, the Saturn version looked the weaker version. And then so everyone would conclude, oh, well, the Saturn's not as powerful as, as the PlayStation. But it was just like, you rarely got those perfect examples of a port like, say, Dead or Alive, where it was like, Okay, wow. Yeah, given it's fair due on both consoles, it looks great on both consoles. You could kind of go either way. Though the creator did go on record saying that he favors the Saturn version, you know, so. I mean, yeah, it runs at, a, two, runs at a higher.
1: It, the whole thing about VDP2, um, it's whenever we were talking to, to John Lenneman as well, when it was, we were talking about the, the size of plane that VDP2 draws, mm-hmm. it's 4096 by 4096, which doesn't sound like a lot, but never you take the Saturn's native resolution. I think that like, I'm not going to try and do the maths, but like John sat on camera and did the math, and he was like, I think it works out like 16 screens high, 14 screens wide, or something. Right. So that that's why you look at Panzer's V. that's why it's just going way into the distance, because it can draw so far ahead. Mm-hmm. It's just, and that there's n- nothing that generation can, can touch Panzer Dragoon's Vi for just, I think, sheer scale, what it does on the Saturn.
2: Yeah.
0: They would call it the infinite plane, right? But uh, it wasn't technically infinite, but it it certainly seemed
2: infinite. Yeah, it really did. What were you going to say, Mel? Oh, I was going to say Dead or Alive runs at a higher resolution on the Saturn, so I always appreciated Mm -hmm, that, you mm -hmm. know? Because you know th- those high-res Saturn games on a CRT, it was really nothing like it. Nothing looked like that. That generation.
0: Take uh, Decathlete for example. Like you, you, you boot up Decathlete oh, yeah. or Winter Heat. You know, it's it. You notice it right away. You know the sixty? Is it? Are they? Are they thirty or sixty frames per second?
2: Uh, I'm sure, they're me.
0: sixty. Yeah, they're sixty. So yeah, that's what I thought. Decathlete, sixty frames per second, high-resolution mode looks. Almost as good as a Dreamcast game, right? But it definitely looks like an arcade game. And it's just noticeable immediately compared to even something like Knights. I mean, Knights looks great and they did a great job with it, but it doesn't even look as sharp as Decathlete, you know? Like those games just perform so amazingly. Uh, I have to recommend those to folks, even if they're not like huge into sports, they just got to try it because those games are a lot of fun and they really do show off what the Saturn can do, you know?
2: Yeah. That was actually one of the things that I hated when, uh, AM two changed their focus, uh, because, you know, virtual fighter two ran at the high res, uh, ran in the high res mode. And then of course, when they started doing, um, fighting vipers, They changed that. They put it in a lower resolution, you know, because they wanted lighting effects and they wanted the ring and and all of that stuff. And, man, I thought that was such a crazy mistake because it made the textures look so much worse than they looked in Virtua Fighter 2. I mean, Virtua Fighter 2 is one of the sharpest games of that generation when you look at that. It's just like, wow, those polygons are razor sharp. And then you immediately watch you know, something like fighting vipers. And it's like, wow, that looks like shit in comparison. <laughs> you know, I mean, it really does. Yeah,
0: <laughs> But they had to sacrifice to, to make those play fields, to be able to crash down the walls and stuff like that, add, add certain stuff. It was always a kind of a compromise. It was like, yeah. yeah. Good example, and I think you did a video on this where you did call it out was uh, Last Bronx, you know, probably one of the best looking games on the Saturn, a showpiece for VDP2 for the ceiling and the floor.
2: Yeah, that was the wicked thing about the Saturn is you got to remember that infinite plane. It could do two of those, not just one, you know? Yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean, so granted you don't interact with the play field, but you do have a lot going on and it does do a very good job of kind of uh, like James always says, if you didn't have the arcade cabinet side by side you'd be hard pressed to know the difference because you'd go play it in the arcade and then you'd come home and it would be so close that it would be you'd be like yeah this is this is the game you know this is uh virtual fighter 2 granted you look at them side by side you do notice the differences automatically but the thing is the gameplay was always there and that was always paramount to sega's amusement teams was to get that gameplay exactly like people remember it because at least that you had control of right and then you did the best you could with the graphics and most folks wouldn't know the difference daytona usa is a it's kind of an exception because it was so early that you did really notice the difference graphically but then again that gameplay was still there and it felt so good i think you could forgive the graphics i did at least you know because um because of how good that game feels and any day, any time I can fire up Daytona USA and play it. And um, it's funny, like if I turn that game on, even just to test my monitor or something, I end up playing it. I just end up, I cannot avoid playing Daytona USA because it's just so much fun. the
1: yeah. along.
2: Right? Yeah, you have, to, you have to sing when you play it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, one, one it, of the best soundtracks ever. Right?
0: Yeah, but uh yeah. like
1: that video of of Takenobo Mitsuyoshi on on YouTube man, whatever. Oh he, yeah. He's he's in the the studio. I, I wish I could be that happy at my work every day, man. That's that's the. I mean, he's just, one of the greatest having an absolute blast.
0: He is one of the greatest game composers of all time. I I mean that's saying something because you've got folks like Yuzo Koshiro and you've got folks like uh, Hideaki Kobayashi. and But I mean, like the way that he just gets into the music and he you can tell he loves it so much. His tunes are always so catchy, whether it's like Burning Rangers or Daytona or whatever, you know, in my book, he's just about as good as it gets.
2: You know, that dude, man, he could make the most ridiculous lyric sound absolutely awesome you know it's like what the hell is even being sung in daytona do you even care yeah (laughs) you know it's like you know it's like it's like what is this dude even talking about half the time you know he's just he's just singing about how blue blue, you know how blue the sky is you know but yet it sounds incredible Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) when i was a kid playing that game i actually didn't know that and this would be my naivete, I guess, but I didn't know that it was a Japanese guy singing the lyrics. I thought it was just some English guy with a really thick accent or something like that. I was just like, like, I can tell there's something <laughs> off about th- these English lyrics. Um, but okay. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> He says, he says blue skies a little funny, you know? Yeah, no, I did. I didn't know. Like, it, it's funny, like much later I would learn and I would really like dive into like Japanese game music composers and stuff like that and just geek out on it. But I mean, at that time I had no idea. I just like took it for face value. I was like, Oh, this music is kind of different and weird, but I love it.
2: <laughs> oh no, we didn't get those glorious English singers until uh Daytona uh, championship circuit edition and ah, that oh God awful soundtrack that accompanied that.
0: No offense. It's, Great for what it is, but it is not Daytona. It's not my Daytona. You know, like oh, I, I no, I'm totally no, again. No. I don't want to be a gatekeeper about this. If you love CCE, and there are like some hardcore Saturn fans,
2: there are there are hardcore
0: uh, <laughs> gamers who are ten times the gamer that I am that swear by CCE, and I'm just like, okay, that's fine, but please don't ask me to play it because it's uh, <laughs> it works now through the tunnel on Netlink, you know. But damn it, if it doesn't make me nauseated playing that game, I don't know what it is about the frame rate or the draw distance or the field of view. But I get to Dinosaur Canyon and I feel like I'm gonna vomit. Um, and I admit I am one of those gamers that does get motion sickness with certain games if the frame rate's really choppy or if there's like I don't know too too much stuff going on. Um, I, I kind of get nauseated with Sonic 3D Blast which is a shame because I would like to play that game more but it just rubber the camera rubber bands constantly and I it makes me nauseated but um but yeah like I just can't play CCE. I own a copy to own a copy but I can't play it.
2: <laughs> oh, you know I imported it and you know those two games were different. They were. Yeah. And I remember the guy was telling me at the electronics boutique how much better that Japanese version was. And I was like, oh my God, I've got to have it then. Mm. If He's telling me it plays exactly like the arcade. And, mm. you know, it did play different. You know, I will give it that. It did play different but it still wasn't anything like the arcade man i don't care which version of that game you have Mm -hmm. neither one of them play as well as the original saturn release it really doesn't
0: and neither did (laughs) uh, the dreamcast version Mm. you know i mean i'm not a fan that's such a disappointment you thought you were finally gonna get it that's the thing is with the, the power of the dreamcast you thought you were finally getting arcade daytona in your in your home it was pretty
1: and When it starts, you know, <laughs> you go, oh, here we go. This looks brilliant. And then the the, the horn that comes into view, and I'm like, "Like, why, why does it look like a space car? Why has it got a funny grill? Like, yeah. what, what have they done to it? Why are the wheels out here? It's like, what have you done?
0: Yeah. To- that wide ass. <laughs> I realize that that's trivial, okay? Like, Just the visuals are kind of a trivial reason to hate a game, but it doesn't even play like that. It just doesn't feel right. And I'm just like, how did no. they miss this? How did they miss the mark on this? Come on, guys. Like, seriously, I'm I'm pretty sure that Dreamcast can handle model <sighs> two. Could they not have just ported that over? What did they not save their source
2: code or something? No, <laughs> it's like, why why? You know? If it's not yeah. if it's not broke, don't fix it. Yeah, you know, I think that was actually half the problem. You know, at that point, Sony and a few other companies were seeing so much success with sim racing or you know, games that were closer to sim racing, like, you Mm. know, Gran Turismo and whatnot. So Sega was like, let's try to make it a little more realistic where you have to brake more and slow down more. And, and of course, you know, Daytona was never about that. Daytona was about taking a hairpin corner at 200 miles an hour and holding your speed. Yes, that's what Daytona was all about. And of course, once you started messing with that, you changed basically the fundamentals of what that game was and what made it fun. Exactly. It bears very little similarity to you know, Daytona 500
0: or the uh, you know, stock car racing, because you know, it's crazy. It's like you know, right. there is no circuit like Dinosaur Canyon that has that, <laughs> that kind of uphill and downhill all over the place. You know, I mean, it's an arcade game. Yeah. I say the same thing about Daytona USA 2. You know, that that's even more off the wall. It's just those games are fun because they're arcade games. And and it's all about yeah. like unrealistic drifting, you know, that that crazy feeling of almost being out of control, but somehow being able to hang on and make it through a turn and then advance. And you're just like, wow, that you get this feeling, this exhilaration and you're just right. like in the zone, you know, you pump that music up to 11 and you just it it, it just has a way of just Putting you in this zone, you know? Yeah. They didn't uh, capture that with CCE or with the Dreamcast version.
1: Because uh, the Dreamcast version as well, you've got the the 2001 that came out in Japan. There's no ability to to tweak your handling at all. But in the Western releases, they added the ability to to change sensitivity on the handling. Mm -hmm. So straight away, you're, you're literally giving every single player a different way to feel how Daytona feels, right? Straight away you're just you're just you're just you're just diluting it because like someone will have it at like maybe three bars, someone will have it at five, someone will have mm-hmm. it all the way up, all the way down. So straight away it's getting the same experience, which is again that what you guys said about holding that that speeding through that that bend, just seeing the the back right hand corner of your hornet skim that wall with the the sonic, you know, right? And, and you just. Get yeah, a bit round and then into the, the straight over the line to you start your next lap. That's what it's about. It's and that's what the Saturn Port does just so well. It just it might look like what was it you called it? It might look like hot garbage. I think it was one of your your sure. terms you've used before, Dave. Um, but it it feels great. Um, and that's that's what it counts it's so good
0: it's wonderful that you can just hit pause and then xyz and restart and it just immediately restarts at, at the at the rolling yep. start and so you can make so many you can fail several times and and it's okay because you just start over start over practice hone it you end up improving so much you know your, your own times and everything like that and it, it makes it so easy you know for you to do that um it's just a infinitely playable game um and i it's like it's a shame that folks look at it and judge it basically by the visuals you know um because I, I realize that i i just look past that now i don't even i'm just so used to the way that it looks you know but it's that really like saturated blue sky that sega does you know and uh it's just i don't know it, it it's it's just definitely sega that's for sure. Yeah, there's a je ne sais quoi, I guess that I can't put words to it, but it's this Sega thing that they did with with a lot of their games. But yeah, so. What else do we want to ask Mel? I,
1: I, no, but we, we asked like one question and then sort of like <laughs> just like went off on all these mad tangents, you know?
0: That's what Editor's Corner is about. Editor's Corner is, <laughs> is supposed to be unscripted and just organic conversation. Because that way, rather than having a bunch of prepared questions, which would basically control the way that the conversation might go, instead, it just might shoot off into whatever tangent it does, you know? And, and, and that allows for spontaneity. I like spontaneity. I guess I want to ask you, Mel, like what, uh, what do you think is a good game for folks to kind of approach the Saturn for the first time, or for like, if they're thinking about getting into the Saturn, like what's a good first game, do you think for folks? You know,
2: I've actually got a sort of standard response to that because over the years, you know, I get a lot of questions about what do I think is the best game or you know, the best, you know, type of game to buy when you first get the system and whatnot. And I tell everybody to buy what they know because the Saturn library is so, you know, well padded out with great titles. You know, it doesn't matter if you liked RPGs. Even RPGs were well represented on the Saturn in terms of quality. You know, there's a number of really great games. And when you factor in the English translations that we have available now, you have even more great games. So, if you like fighting games, jump into the fighting games and explore a little bit. If you like shoot 'em ups, jump into the shoot 'em ups. The Saturn has hundreds of games that were released if you, you know branch out into the import scene a little bit and a lot of those games have english option menus they are very easy to play a lot of these arcade games didn't really have a story tied to them so if there is a little bit of japanese speech it's not like you're missing a lot you know just just play what you know and then kind of discover it organically you know, find that genre that you like the most and then go into the Saturn with it and discover what the Saturn has to offer in that genre. And then it sort of, that, it, it explodes from there. It's like one game will lead you to the mm-hmm. next game, which will lead you to the next game. You know, stick to the stuff you know and love and just, you know, sort of experiment with what the what the Saturn had to offer. Because, you know, really when you look at it, The Saturn did something for every genre really, really well. So you're going to find those games. You're going to try those games. You're going to eventually, you know, watch a video that recommends those games. And I mean, I really don't think you can go wrong. That's the amazing thing about the Saturn. All you hear about is why did it fail? Why didn't it sell well? Why didn't it do this than that? When in fact there were a thousand games for this console and it's Mm -hmm. range of games is absolutely huge, you know? Right. It had fighting fighting games from the gods. It had shoot 'em ups. It had those quirky ass Sega games like Knights and Burning Rangers mm-hmm. and it had the 3D, you know, on-rail shooters like Panzer and I mean it had something that was just so good and a lot of that stuff you couldn't play it on the PlayStation and it didn't even have an analog on the PlayStation. Mm-hmm. And then often even if it did have a PlayStation version of it, especially if it was two dimensional, the Saturn version often had something special about it that was different than what it was on the PlayStation. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's how, that's sort of how I approach that. It's like, play what you know and love, go into the Saturn with the type of stuff that you typically play and just let the system impress you. And for most people, I think they're finding the Saturn will impress them if they just give the damn thing a chance Mm -hmm. oh it's true Um,
1: you know and it's great to see the kind of renaissance that we're seeing with the Saturn just now I think for for like ourselves the three of us it's almost like the kind of most bittersweet of we told you so's Mm -hmm. you know because if you think back to (laughs) I mean again we've spoken in the past you know we're all the, the kind of only people who we felt had Saturn we might have had like a friend like the story that Mel was saying about everything he experienced was with our best friend. I've got a very similar approach because myself, and my best friend Sam, we we lived through the, the kind of Saturn and Dreamcast leaders together. But yeah, it, it's it's great to see that so many people and you see so many new tweets from people in the, the kind of UK retro community, especially where I'm picking up a Saturn or I'm getting an ODE I've helped, must be double figures. Now people have sent me SD cards, I've just filled them up and, and sent them mm-hmm. back to them, whether it's for Satiator or, or either or. It's great, and people will DM us or they'll, they'll mention in the comments in the channel that oh, this game's amazing, I can't believe I've never played this. Certain games look so good. And it, it's amazing to see that people are, are giving it a chance because, like, back in the day, we, we know, but again, there's that phrase, but people didn't, and whether that was even people we knew... Or, you know, whether it's, it's a school or, or college, university, whatever, even in retail stores, like we've spoken about the, the sheer retail bias that we, we've seen as well, where you could walk into a, a store and you'd be actively dissuaded from, don't look at a Saturn, would you like a PlayStation? Have you seen Ridge Racer? Yeah. You don't want Virtue Fighter, have you? You know, so it is like a kind of bittersweet, we told you so, but. We, we don't see it through gritted teeth. It's, it's again, it's amazing mm-hmm. that finally it's like our favorite system is getting, Yeah. it's it's time to shine. Um, just unfortunate that it's not making Sega any money from doing it.
0: It's also unfortunate that it's so expensive. Like I wish yeah. it was just not selfishly cheap so I could get more games, but just, I wish it was more affordable and approachable for folks. Cause that's the first thing that turns people off. Like, mm-hmm. and, and I, and i have to advocate piracy in that, in that uh, you know it's like when cuz cuz i'll be at prge or something that i'll be talking to somebody and they'll be like oh yeah i i I can't collect for Saturn. It's just too expensive. I was like, I didn't say anything about collecting for it. I just said, play the games, yeah, you know, Right. <laughs> you must play Sega Saturn. You know, I mean, I realize this may not be doable for everybody, but it's like, if you grab even a broken Saturn, you know, with a burnt out uh, laser and Sega Steve at PRG, he was selling some like uh, broken Saturns for like 20 bucks, 40 bucks. He was selling, you know, with, and they just had the, a burnt out laser. Right. And you throw a Fenrir in there. Or you throw a satiator in there. And I realized that is, that is a commitment. But even my brother-in-law, who recently bought a satiator, he was like, well, I just figured if I buy just a couple of Saturn games, that's the same cost as a satiator. Exactly. You know, get a satiator, play the games. Figure out, like Mel said, figure out what you like. Figure out what's good and what you resonate with. Because once you find a game that you're really in love with, then you can maybe think about going and getting a physical copy of it. If you love it that much, you know, like if it's something like dragon force and like, wow, I, I absolutely adore this game. I think I'm willing to spend like 200 bucks on this game. You know, it might be up to that point now. I'm not really sure, but, you know yeah these games are not cheap especially not for the u.s long boxes and unfortunately even the japanese games are starting to really climb up there as more and more people watch you know like mel's videos and more and more people just become aware of the console and I but i it, it just kills me to hear people just completely write it off or think oh yeah there's no chance i'll ever be able to you know not unless a saturn mini comes out or something i'm like don't wait for a saturn mini it may never come i i can't i hope it does but it may never come so don't wait for a saturn mini just get yourself a saturn you know if it doesn't power up well there are new power supplies that you can throw in there if it doesn't burn read discs who cares you know you don't need to be burning discs anymore you've got several different ode options you know um, so it's just, I just want folks to play the games, you know, and experience them. Cause they'll see, I feel like the console will kind of sells itself if, you know, cause it's that good. It's not a situation where it was like an Atari Jaguar, uh, no offense to the Jaguar, like it has a handful of good games, but it's the Saturn just has bucket loads of good games. You
2: know, I, I I'm actually working on a video currently about the Atari Jaguar. Okay. And I didn't have a lot of experience with that console back in the day. I had a friend, the same friend that uh, imported uh, Japanese Saturn games with me. As a matter of fact, mm-hmm. but he only had a handful of titles. He, you know, had a, a Aliens versus Predator. He had Doom. Mm-hmm. You know, he had a couple of more games, and that's all I really had the experience back then. And over the years, I played a few more games and, you know, they were what they were. And then just recently, I decided that I was going to make a video about the Atari Jaguar. And I thought this would be a special video for my channel because most of the content that I make is coming from a position of having played the games a lot. So I feel comfortable talking about them because I've played them so much and I know so much about them. But I thought this video would be nice because I have so little experience with the Atari Jaguar and the vast majority of its library. And up to this point, I had actually never played a Jaguar CD at all. So, so, you know, sitting down and writing the script for this video and playing these games and capturing this gameplay... Wow, is that a terrible system, man? (laughs) Holy. I mean, did you actually find a Jaguar CD that worked? Oh, here you go. I did it through a combination of real hardware, a flash cartridge, and the new emulator that came out oh, for it. Oh, okay. Big, what is it? The big PMU? Uh,
0: Rich Whitehouse, right? Did that? Yeah, yeah, it
2: plays like 99% of the library. Right, you know? yeah. So, you know, I was putting together all of this captured gameplay from these sources. And, you know, man, I was... As a Saturn owner, I always appreciated those diehard Jaguar fans sure. that defended the system. Yeah. But good God, man. After capturing... I know I have 40 hours of gameplay capture from that library so far. Mm -hmm. I've never in my life seen so many terrible games. Just one after the other. Just good lord, man. It's like when you want to talk about why a system didn't sell, Jaguar should be the poster child.
0: And you know why? Cause they're all Western developed games. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry to say it, but oh, the Japanese knew what they were doing when it came to like a lot of the games. You know what I mean? Like they, yeah, those Western developed titles were rough. Oh, they were. And, and again, like we grew. Like Western development houses, like have come a long way. And there was even in the 2010s around like the phil fish era you know saying like japanese game uh gaming development has stagnated and western games are like the new thing you know uh with the xbox 360 era you know it was like there was this pride that you know, we we're doing all the innovative stuff and everything you know but and of course it all comes in cycles and now you know of course japanese gaming has burst forth like new innovation and stuff like that there's a lot of good stuff going on but traditionally back then they had a lot of catching up to do western console game development at least maybe on the pc it was different but as far as console game development goes they just were not up to par no and i will defend the 3do actually like i enjoy playing the 3do i like having a 3do and i have you know several 3do games it's not the greatest console but i do appreciate it for what it did uh for the games industry i appreciate what it was trying to do but i can't say the same thing with the atari jaguar like no. if i find one locally for a cheap i'll probably buy it just because but like there's no way i'm going out of my way to try to collect for that mm. or or even play it for that matter
2: yeah i i mean honestly it's it's one of those system not systems but it's one of those cases where i began making the video for that with this With this glorious notion that I was going to discover what made the Jaguar so great. And I was going to convey it to my audience that, hey, this thing was actually good. Go out and play it. Let me tell you something, man. That script took a dark turn at the end. Mm -hmm. And it is a (laughs) nasty destruction of why. You know, Atari and the company that owned it and the developers that developed those games, why it failed so heinously, mm-hmm. and why third parties are so important to the success of a console. And you know, it it, it was a learning experience for me. And you know, I love actually I love that about it too, because it taught me that even me, you know, who has played so much of Sega there's still so much for me to learn from this hobby, man. Mm -hmm. That's why this hobby is so awesome. Yeah. It's like, Just when you think, you know, you got it down, you can have any conversation with anybody. There's some part of it that you don't know well. There's some part of it that can teach you something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's why gaming is so awesome.
0: Now, I mean, you know, Tempest 2000 is pretty great. But then again, it got a Saturn port. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm fine just playing my Saturn port of Tempest 2000. I don't need to own a Jaguar just to be able to play that one game. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) there's a couple games on there that I think are passable. But again, that's the thing is they're passable. They're not like phenomenal. Yeah. They're just like, okay. Yeah. On any other console, this would be like a bottom tier game, but on the Jaguar, it's like the best thing they got. Right. Yeah. (laughs) You know?
2: (laughs) yeah it's like could you imagine if they had put doom on the playstation without any soundtrack or any music to it no Uh atmospheric you know sounds at all it's just you get nothing zero nada of
0: course saturn fans can't talk that much though because saturn doom is just really terrible (laughs) it's like a slideshow i uh, I feel like i'm playing (laughs) mist saturn Doom. you you know
1: Oh, man. oh my God! The thing is, people slag off the Dreamcast controller, but uh, I mean that that Jaguar. Con- I had a friend who had one, and I'll, I played it for like ten minutes, and I remember that like, the controller has this god awful keypad in the middle. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, like, the games they, they came with a an insert, didn't they? Mm-hmm. And like you would put the insert on top of the buttons, so it would tell you what each of them did. Mm-hmm. It was like what? It's this horrible. I was like, I played Alien versus Predator for ten minutes, and I was like, no, this is just no. I'll stick to Alien, Alien trilogy. But seriously, yeah.
0: what were they thinking? Not putting dual sticks on the Dreamcast controller? I well, still ha- have a chip on my shoulder about that because I'm just like, come on! Like at that point, Sony had already done it. Why, why, why did they remove the six buttons? Yeah, exactly. Well, because they planned on using the four buttons as like a quasi uh stick basically that's what that's why they had to do that is because they they basically used it for like the cardinal directions of another stick but if they just would have put another stick then they could have kept the six buttons and it would have been perfect that that was one thing i remember even back in the day thinking oh god this is not good because PlayStation two is going to have dual sticks because PlayStation one at that point had dual sticks, you know, and everybody was going out and getting the dual shot controller because it was like, obviously better. You know, it was like, okay, you can finally play, fps is correctly and not to mention that but i mean it had other uses as well in different games you know it seemed like a no-brainer but then for them not to do it i don't know it was just kind of seemed like a missed opportunity
2: you know it's one of those things where if you go back and you really pay attention to the year that you know 90
0: yeah when the year it was being developed you mean
2: when you look at the year it was developed and the year it came out in japan a lot mm-hmm. of people will argue that no game really utilized dual analog, you know, control. And so that's the reason why the Dreamcast didn't have it. But that is such a cop out because... Sega's a
0: forward thinking company though, like, right? Well,
2: it's not, it's not just that. I mean, Sega had to realize that its Dreamcast was going to see many, many ports from the PlayStation, which it did. And had it been a success, it was gonna see many, many ports from the PlayStation 2. And both those consoles, by the time it hit the mar- by the time the Dreamcast hit the market, mm-hmm. We're going to have dual analog sticks. Mm -hmm. So you immediately put yourself in a position of if some great third party game came along with an innovative use of that second stick, your controller was simply unable to match it. Mm -hmm. You don't not give your customer what something, you know, something that the lead console of a generation is banking so heavily on Mm -hmm. they had to realize sega at some point had to realize some big title from the playstation or eventually the playstation 2 a few years later would get ported to the dreamcast and not be able to be played the same because they didn't have the same controller advances i mean it's it's just simple Sony dominated that market, man. When the Dreamcast came up, Sony was well on its way to 100 million PlayStation systems on the market. Mm -hmm. Every game was going to get made for the PlayStation first and then port it to the Dreamcast.
0: Yeah, I often say that the Dreamcast's greatest downfall was not having a DVD drive because of all of the things that it did the like not not having a DVD drive meant going with the Giga disc which was like a proprietary format not to mention the fact that they included the mill CD thing which led to piracy so it's like and a lot of folks will counter argue to me they'll say okay but when the Dreamcast was being developed there wasn't a cheap enough or affordable enough DVD drive at that point right and I say okay well they should have waited exactly they were too early with it they were too early that's the thing wait until there is one that's what sony did i mean again trying to jump the gun trying to beat sony to the game but if it's sony okay they're strong no matter what the only way you're going to beat them is if you're firing on all cylinders and even then you won't beat them but you can at least compete with them you know at least you can stay in the game you know we can talk shoulda coulda woulda all day that's not what happened history is history but i just wish they had considered putting a dvd even if it, if they'd taken a loss on it you know honestly and and just focus on good software which they had for the dreamcast they definitely had good software uh, right out the gate they had way better software than the playstation 2 did out the gate but not having that DVD-ROM drive really killed it. And I can just honestly say that as a salesperson who had to sell the darn thing. Like I, I tried so hard to be that sales clerk who kind of persuaded people towards the Dreamcast just due to the robust software library. And again, they would just be like, yeah, well, I just want it for the DVD player. I'll just get it now for the DVD player and just wait for the software to trickle in, you know? And that was like, so many people were just like, I just want to watch the matrix DVD on my, on my PlayStation too. You know?
1: Yeah. If you're talking about retail, did, did you have anything? I'm trying to hold that up. And see if, if, if the brightness might stop it. In the UK, we, it was a Dreamcast DVD player bundle. It was an Encore v 450 bundled with a Dreamcast for an extra hundred quid, so it was two nine nine. Get your Dreamcast with a DVD player and a copy of Choo Choo Rocket, and even even
0: that didn't didn't help. That I no, I don't know. We didn't have that. No, we did I just
1: see I Sega Europe. No, yeah,
0: Sega Europe. They saying and that's that's why I love that perspective. I love the UK perspective because it is there are variations and differences in our experience, you know, but the UK were really about the whole like bundling and different console variations. I noticed they did that with the Saturn too. You had like, you had like your tomb Raider, uh, Saturn, you know, tomb Raider special edition Saturn. You know, we had nothing like that. It was just like, you get this, Mm -mm. you either get like the original quote unquote model one or the, the, the square box model two thing, you know, but it was like, we didn't have any special packaging or pack ins or anything like that. It was just,
1: have you seen the Australian Mark One the Daytona bundle? That is possibly the most beautiful Saturn box.
0: I haven't.
1: It's like now we had like our, we we had the sleeve with like huh. the Virtua Fighter like characters in the bottom corner, yeah. But they've got like a whole like bespoke sleeve that goes over their the box, and it's like uh-huh. Daytona themed, and it is. St- stunning it's like a, i think it's the most gorgeous um saturn launch variant i've seen
2: i gotta look that if up you can
1: try to find a picture of it it's okay. so nice
2: hmm. it's rare as hell now too
1: i would imagine that it must be worth a fortune if you've got one of those boxes as well
2: yeah well in in, in good condition at least sure
0: <laughs> well <laughs> i'm looking it up right now i just want to see but what honestly, you're talking about yeah oh wow
2: have you
1: found it? Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's like, Oh yeah, that's absolutely. cool. That's funny. You know, even Finland of all places got a uh they got a netlink they they actually were they were the other pl- country to get Netlink, and it was like there was some kind of like tie in with like SeaDo or something like that. It was really weird. I forget what the the instance was, but essentially, yeah, there's there's like a small contingency of, of Finland Saturn fans that remember Netlink and had had access to Netlink. It's so weird because the the rest of the, the rest of Europe didn't get it, you know. But uh, they I don't know they had some kind of net they had some kind of network that that supported it so they got it over there similar to i guess how like brazil came in and and made a deal with uh catapult and they were like give us your technology we'll put out the mega net thing you know in brazil you know and support uh support online (laughs) play for the genesis you know down in down in brazil it's like funny how you get like these these little markets that that uh well i guess i shouldn't call brazil a little market but but yeah yeah
2: that's a pretty big pretty market. big
0: market <laughs> and huge sega fans for sure you know yeah. the portuguese they love their sega you know talk about like different experiences there you go like we did a cast about we did the portuguese cast which was like telling the story of like portuguese folks you know their memories of saturn and, and why it was so big because of dragon ball z and everything you know yeah. it's like a completely different set of memories than what like most of the west so it's like they they probably really get tired of a lot of these failure videos too because they're like what are you talking about saturn was awesome <laughs> you know yeah it outsold the playstation over here you you know, they're just, so it's just completely different narrative. So yeah, everybody kind of has like a different take on it, you know, depending on where you were in the world.
2: Yeah. It's like talking with someone from Europe about the master system, mm. you know, in the UK and a few other places, man, you know, the master system was as prevalent or more so than the nes
0: yeah absolutely over here it was this weird console that i had one friend who had a master system and i had no clue what it was you know like i knew what space harrier was though so like when he brought me over to his house and he showed me space harrier i was like oh wow you've got this game from, from the arcade yeah of course like i was a lot younger and i didn't realize like it's, it's kind of a far cry from the arcade version, but still, it's Space Harrier, you know? Um, but yeah, I was just like, I've never even heard of the Master System. To me, the Master System was a lot like the Saturn. Like, I just didn't hear about it. You couldn't not know the Genesis. It made so much noise, you know, with, with the Sonic pack-in and everything. But yeah, like, I never heard about the Master System. And I didn't hear about the Saturn for a year or two until, uh, until I finally caught on. But yeah. So yeah, with you, it's a different story though. You, you knew, you know, you were plugged in from day one, you know?
2: Well, you know, I was also, I wasn't also a little bit older than a lot of the people that watch my channel. True. Yeah. I mean, when the Saturn, you got to realize, man, when the Saturn launched in Japan, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm damn near 20 years old at this point, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? So it was kind of like, You know, I was graduated from school. I was working a full-time job. You know, it was easy for me to slide into that import role and, you know, import a $700 system because, right. I was an adult, you know, I wasn't a 10 year old kid who needed his parents to buy Mm -hmm. it. And, you know, that changes your perspective on things incredibly is right. How old were you and how much autonomy did you have, you know, in regards to these generations? Because if you were a kid and you were reliant on a parent to buy you something, more than likely you got a PlayStation or a Nintendo 64. Mm -hmm. Because that's what was popular. That's what was advertised. That's what, you know, that's what was everywhere. That's where the recommendations were. That's what the people that worked in retail were telling you to get. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody told you to buy a Saturn because the Saturn, of course, sat on the shelf and everybody saw it as a failure.
0: Yeah. It's like you had to tell your grandma, like, okay, you go to the store, you get this. No, no, (laughs) don't go left. Go right. You know, they're going to try to tell you to go left. But no. you, Yeah. So it's true. you You know. Oh, anyway. Where were we? I don't even know. I think we're. Yeah. Maybe we need to wrap. Did you have any other, like, burning questions, James, that you wanted to ask?
1: Um, This one, yeah, I don't know. We're all of of an age where we grew up with arcades around as an arcade gaming was king. What can we as gamers and content creators do to keep the spirit of arcade games alive in the modern day? Which was one of Dan's questions.
0: That's a good one. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I mean, did you see that post today, James, from some dude who was like, I tried the Dreamcast and now I see why it died. It was because these games suck or yeah. these games haven't aged well. Uh, and I'm just like, are you kidding me? Like, I mean, I guess it's that view that arcade style gameplay is shallow or that it hasn't aged well. But I mean, I think if you look at the way that mobile gaming has kind of taken over and it's a lot of the same kind of like quick pick up and play experience, all about it. it it, like being accessible and immediately playable versus like it being like this long sprawling thing that's going to take so much of your time you know i don't know i couldn't disagree more with that sentiment but that was a very like hot take you
2: know I, i i think actually that is probably if you really look at what that person is saying what they're basically saying is is that they probably tried these arcade centric games he got his ass whooped (laughs) <laughs> and he didn't want to put any more effort into it and actually i'm not saying that as like oh these gamers suck it's it's a different kind of experience isn't it yeah if you go into an arcade yep. game you are expected to perform pretty pretty well from the get go or you aren't playing it too long right. versus you play a modern game a modern game 20 minutes to get through the opening cinema, mm-hmm. 10 minutes to create a character, another 20 minutes to go through a tutorial, then another 30 minutes of basic gameplay where the developer has introduced the game to you in terms of its many systems and and the depth of, you know that a lot of modern games have. Before you know it, you've spent two hours in a modern game. You haven't died a single time. Mm -hmm. You haven't even been threatened with death a single time. You go ahead and pop in Sega Rally. You crash into those corners a couple times. 90 seconds in, your game is over. Mm -hmm. And, and, And that right there, I think, is the break in generational differences. Those of us that grew up playing arcade games... We became adjusted to that expectation of, hey, jump in and see how you do. Oh man, I got my, you know, my ass kicked or, or I crashed 20 times and I didn't get to play that much longer. We were conditioned to want to jump right back into that Mm -hmm. and try again. And that's where that arcade appeal and draw is so ingrained in our DNA. Versus someone who came after that generation. They're going to go into it and they're going to die immediately. Or the timer is going to time them out really fast. And that's going to happen their first four or five times playing. And of course, they're not used to their games doing that Mm -mm. to them. So immediately, what happens? I don't want to play this anymore. I'm constantly failing. Constant failure. And if one thing that you really you know, have to take into account, I don't care how great of a gamer you are, most of the time when you take on a new arcade game, you're pretty much going to get your butt handed to you. You're not going to perform well. Go into an arcade with the latest fighting game. More than likely, the computer's going to mop the floor with you. Doubly so if somebody is standing there already playing it and you come up and challenge them, they're going to mop the floor with you. There's a a give and take with arcade games where you have to accept, hey, I'm going to die. I'm going to time out. I'm going to lose. I just need to keep putting effort into it. And a lot of gamers just simply aren't used to that when they very first start a brand new game. Mm -hmm. They're used to being alive for you know, five hours at a stretch in a game like Spider-Man 2 or they're used to maybe dying once in the entire level in something like God of War. You know, I mean, there's this massive difference in how games are played. Even in something like Dark Souls or Dark Souls-like games, you typically are playing for a while before you come across that enemy that kills you and restarts you. You know, I would just like to sit them down with some of Sega's harder arcade games, because if you think Dark Souls is hard, go try to actually play some of those old 80s coin ops, man, where one hit would kill you and all three of your men are gone in 60 seconds. They're
0: brutal. They're brutal. I have to say, though, I think... I was amazed by that statement. Cause I was like, I thought the dreamcast library sells itself. If you just sat down with an ODE and a dreamcast, I figured you'd be sold because to me, like the dreamcast is bliss. Like most of its games are just phenomenal. It's the, that feeling where you're like, how can this console be so good, be this good, you know? Um, but that's me that, you know, am I out of touch? Am I just, th- you know, seeing it with rose colored glasses? I don't think so. Um,
2: No, you're just, you're, you're a different breed and that's really what it comes down to. Yeah. You're a different breed. Your expectations of games were, are different. You know, when you, when you sat down and you played Sega Rally for the first time and you timed out on the desert course, Mm -hmm. the easiest course in the game. You went back and you tried again and you tried again and you tried again. And then even when you got to the point where you could beat the course, you started picking up on other things. The developer put in that game. Like you started listening to how the car met the the gravel on the undercarriage. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and you started to realize that, Hey, if I'm not making a certain sound, it means I'm not making contact. It means I'm going slower. The way that you, you might come off
0: of a jump. And if you hit, tarmac you have grip but if you hit uh you know if you hit dirt you slide a little bit you know and it has right. that it, yeah. y- there's no force feedback at all and yet somehow that game manages to give you this psycho force feedback this feeling that
2: Absolutely.
0: What I see on the screen is exactly what I feel like. I swear if that game had forced feedback, I'd probably, my mind would be blown. But as it is, it's just incredible how they were able to do that. Oh. I don't know that I've played another racing game that has that kind of one-to-one feeling. And I mean, there's some phenomenal racing games out there. That's the thing is like with Sega Rally, you know maybe it isn't the best looking racing game out there today, but if you still pick it up right now, I think anybody who loves cars and loves driving can't tell me that that game doesn't feel phenomenal, you know. The the depth to Sega
1: Rally is just phenomenal. I mean it's it's my favorite game ever. I mean I've I could spend an hour talking about Sega Rally. It's just like it's.
0: Oh that's, that's... my brother in law did ask me. He's like, so there's only two cars in the game, right? And I was like, yeah, there's only two cars. Oh no no no, no, no. no, I was like, I'm well, trying. well, I was like, technically there's three. <laughs> but, but he was like, okay, <laughs> I just thought there was something wrong with my copy or something. There's only two games. I was like, that's not the point, Dave. It's not about having all the vehicles, it's about you being a better driver forget the other cars forget whatever whoever your opponent is you are your opponent and it's about beating yourself because you're gonna get you're gonna get to that point where you've mastered the game and you've pushed yourself to the point where you didn't think it was possible and then you start saying can i break can i beat myself can i can i beat myself by even a millisecond you know i mean i would say that that translates to real life too i mean if anybody knows like I, I mean i love cars unfortunately i can't afford the hobby but, but i do love cars and i love driving you know and uh you feel the same way on a track like with, with a real car you know C- can you push yourself even further you know
1: how many people when they play sega rally realize that on desert stage the first kind ca- blue car you come to after the first checkpoint if you you've got to time your turn and that right hand slide mm-hmm. so that as you come along the right hand side of the blue car it clips you and you actually get like a 10 12 mile per hour speed yeah boost. exactly yeah yep. and then and then if you come out and the line properly yeah uh-huh. the pink and blue one before the over jumps yeah over as well but you were talking about the angle you come off at the the over jumps you've got to adjust your wheels in the air so you're always toggling left and right in the d-pad because you've got to make sure that At the angle your car lands, that you've got your wheels positioned via the D pad so that you know for that next bounce that you're going to hit your. It's like, and that's what makes Sega games so amazing. Yeah, you can jump right in, like Mel says, you can have your shot, see how you get on. Every Sega arcade game has that beautiful depth to it where, like, there's so many gameplay nuances Mm -hmm. that if you master them, It's like Crazy Taxi, you can pick up Crazy Taxi and you can have great fun with it, but if you master limit cuts, the crazy drift, the crazy through, you can start racking up combos, you can hit speeds that are just ridiculous, and before you know it, you start getting, you know, you go from 10 passengers to 20, to 40, to 50, before you know it, you're on there for 45 minutes playing the damn game, it's like, yeah, and that's what makes Sega games so brilliant. That, yeah, you can pick them up and play them, you can have fun, but if you spend the time to master them and what the developers cleverly programmed into these games for you to learn on your own, the sky's the limit, You can what you do with them is, is amazing.
0: And as much as I do love and appreciate a game like Breath of the Wild or Tears of the Kingdom in terms of bang for buck speaking metaphorically in terms of our time, because time is the most valuable resource that we can't really get back the age that we are and having all the obligations and stuff like that. It's like, in that 45 minutes you've experienced so much you've played so much and you've gotten so much value for your time in terms of gameplay whereas you could spend the same 45 minutes just running around and trying to climb a a hill or you know do some trivial side quest in tears of the kingdom and not necessarily and it's a great game that requires a lot of you you know in terms of time in order to really get the most out of what it is but again i mean That's the wonderful thing about arcade games. And I I really feel strongly that 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 shouldn't be lost, you know, that that new generations shouldn't completely not know what arcade games are all about. And it's a wonderful type of gameplay where it's just immediately accessible and can take you a lifetime to master. But the brief little play stints that you have with it are immensely enjoyable and you get a lot of bang for buck in terms of just how much value you get in your gameplay time. You know, and again, I'm going to come into some more time when the kids move out and stuff and I'll have more time for like RPGs and stuff like that. But for for my money, you know, being able to just turn on like a Sega arcade game, I know I'm going to have fun and I know I'm going to be challenged and I know that I'm going to come away from it feeling like, yeah, this is a, a great way to spend an hour, you know? Yep.
2: Well, to answer that question, man, the best thing that we can do as, you know, trying to, you know, really let the generations that come behind us how great these arcade games were and why they should be preserved is just explain to them why they were so great. Explain to them in detail like you guys just did all the little nuances in Sega Rally that make you better. You know, make these people... See these arcade games for more than what they were originally seeing them as. You know, they were seeing them as oh, this game has no content, this game only has two cars, or this game kills you with, you know, a a terrible difficulty, or whatever the case may be. Explain to them, hey, this is the reason these games were awesome. You can do this. You can do that. There's depth here. There's, you know, reasons for you to keep playing it because you're going to get better at it every time, mm-hmm. you know, and just and and you'll eventually reach those people that come to the realization, hey. I got a little bit further. I'm starting to see what you mean by how the car reacts to the surface. I'm starting to see what you mean by getting that bump off of a car in the corner. You know, I'm starting to see what you mean as why this is so addictive. Mm-hmm. You know, don't come at the a uh, different generation with you don't understand. Take the time to make them understand.
0: Mm hmm. And if anything, I feel that Sega games, whether they were doing this intentionally or not, they respect your time. Even in a game like Shining Force 3 or in Dragon Force, the way that you can put as much or as little time into it and still come away enjoying the experience, you can't do that with a lot of other games out there and on a lot of other consoles it takes a, a significant play session on some of those PlayStation games just to even get anywhere in it, you know, and to get yeah. to a point where you can even save. And I mean, there are exceptions, I guess, on the, on the Saturn, uh, Shining the Holy Ark has a really long intro <laughs> sequence before you can even save oh. your game. <laughs> Soccer awards. Man. Soccer wars. Hell, oh, man. oh yeah. No, you're not even kidding. Oh. But for the most part, I feel like, you know, Sega games by and large, they respect your time and they allow you to have enjoyable gameplay sessions, whether they're half hour or whether they're eight hours. Like you take the day off from work and you just spend the entire day playing (laughs) Sega Rally, which to me sounds great. Like in eight hours, I would really tighten up the bolts, (laughs) you know, but you know, I never find that kind of time. I did recently improve my own record just by turning off the music and uh, listening with headphones to the undercarriage, you know, and oh my God, it just helps so much. And the fact that they thought about that and put that in the game it just speaks to the level of care and craftsmanship that they put into those games yeah and yes even back in the day in the magazines they would get kind of criticized for oh well it only has two tracks and you can't really count going in reverse as another track you know the game lacks content but no one could ever deny that when it came to gameplay it had it where it counts you know Yep. that's what sega was Moving forward, I really hope that there are individuals in positions to be able to make the call on getting some of these arcade games and getting some of this arcade heritage back into the spotlight so that new generations can experience it and hopefully, you know, see and find what was great about it, just like we did. Because I feel like a lot of it just speaks for itself. It's that experience you just got to have firsthand. Yeah, They have a lot of uh, slept on IPs, you know, (laughs) that need to
2: be resurrected. I will say that, you know. Yeah, that's actually something that has always bothered me about modern Sega is they just, they leave so much of that, you know, that history just on the table. They don't even bother. If you could
0: choose one IP for them to bring back, what would it be if you could only choose one?
2: Uh, you asked me this a long time ago. Did I? <laughs> yep. You know, and the the answer is the same, man. I think they need to bring back Shinobi. Oh, yeah. yeah. See, man, you have to understand with the modern gameplay mechanics and the modern setup of a game, the core of what makes a game, you know, today that you see, imagine Shinobi made with elements from like, spider-man games or the god of war games where you're essentially created in this 3d world and this 3d world is alive and there's things to do in it mm-hmm. there's ninja to go rescue who you can then trade for who have these new abilities like the game gear game
0: but do you see it as a 3d over the shoulder kind of thing or are you talking like well stick with the side scrolling or what
2: Oh, no, 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 no. You would want to do it in the vein that the PlayStation 2 game was done in. Mm. So it's going to be three-dimensional. You know, but at the same time, you're giving it some modern sensibilities in terms of design. Mm -hmm. You know, you want to make that world open. You want to create characters within that world that are, you know, maybe really tough. Maybe you need a certain ability that you needed to get. Add some adventure elements to it where, you know, you needed to level up. You needed to gain a certain weapon. You needed to gain a certain ability. You needed... This world is wide open to you, but you aren't ready for it in the beginning. Mm-hmm. When you go when you go meet that samurai master boss, he's going to absolutely annihilate you that first time because you don't have what you need, but then you get what you need and you go back in and that fight becomes, you know, accessible to you. Mm-hmm. And that kind of open world, that kind of different enemy, that kind of design element, with the shinobi character just ninja in general that's fast moving you know that you know a lot of dashing basically the ps2 gameplay was solid enough to expand and build upon in and of itself Mm -hmm. you know you just like i said you want to add those modern sensibilities to it to kind of give it you know a a little more you know you 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 It's a bad word, but you want to give it content, you know, you want to make it so people access it and keep playing it. And I think that's, you know, I think that's one of those, you know, games that would do really well, Mm -hmm. you know, in a, you know, by adding those types of modern, you know, core mechanics and whatnot. I mean, they tried to do it with Sonic in the last Sonic, but I don't think Sonic was the right character for it. You know, he really wasn't. I mean, Sonic Frontiers was like, oh, we're going to give you this big world, but then this gameplay is going to still be kind of Sonic-y. It's still going to be that fast, Mm -hmm. you know. I don't know, man. Sonic feels like Sonic. There's not a lot of nuance with Sonic, you know, but with Shinobi shinobi could have a run shinobi could have a dash shinobi could have a ninja dash where he disappears and reappears someplace else yeah i mean shinobi's a freaking ninja man you could add 20 different moves to that dude and they really if they made
0: it like period in japan you know with a lot of the forests and the topography and stuff like that and i think that it would be a cool like exploration opportunity
2: you know Imagine a three dimensional Shinobi with like the Okami graphics engine, man. You know that sort of that water painting, mm-hmm. that sort of Japanese art style, exactly. man. And there, and then there's Shinobi. There's that expectation. There's that.
0: And the music would have to be killer too. The soundtrack would have to.
2: It would be, it be would. absolutely
0: killer. But yeah, no, I I could see that for sure. Absolutely. I mean, there's a there's a strong franchise that just kind of got left completely just got i mean it was so strong on the genesis and it you've done videos about this before where they just kind of flip-flopped and just on each console and just we're just like yeah we're gonna go in a new direction and completely abandon uh, you know all these oh, things I, that nev- were,
2: I, I, I never understood that about sega yeah Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, yeah. man. It's like, mm-hmm.
0: you know, just two-faced. Their own worst enemy at sometimes, Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, it's like, holy hell.
0: Yeah. With a self like that, who needs enemies, right?
2: <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah, yep. it's crazy. Well, yeah, we're coming up on time, and we should probably wrap this. Um, thanks a lot, Mel. I appreciate your time. Uh, and, and you too, James, for waking up.
2: Yeah, you too, that was man. Good.
1: No, it's great. great, to speak to you, Mel as well. I say um you you are the kind of the the inspiration for why for myself and Dan started doing our channel. Um, we started off as an audio podcast um and then last October we decided to kinda take it onto YouTube um and do the podcast plus kind of like shorter game focused videos, trying to give that kind of UK perspective. So Long-time long fan, but um, great to actually sit down and have a, a Sega chat with you. and Dave, thank you very much, mate. I know you were through the mill getting this organized in terms of times and stuff like that, so thank you very much for, yeah. for setting it up.
0: Yeah, no, I wanted you guys to be able to meet and talk and stuff. You're both great. I'm lucky to be able to call you both friends, honestly.
2: <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that, man. It's always good to see people that, uh, I mean, not just enjoy the YouTube crap that I do, but you know, kind of understand it too, you know, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, hearing that, that, you know, you kind of wanted to give your own perspective. That's the only reason I did what I did. I just, yeah. I wanted to give my own perspective. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's awesome to really hear that that has motivated somebody else to do the same because, mm-hmm. You know, we get enough voices together. Maybe we can stop those damn, right. you know, Sega sucks videos, Sega failed Mm -hmm. videos, and they'll make more videos about how great those games were, you know?
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) I've made a real concerted effort recently to try to collaborate as much as we can with Sega guys, uh, because I think it's so important that the UK side of things gets out there as well. And I always say this, like we have a, we have plenty of similarities for sure. But as you said, Mel, it's like, everybody's got a different experience, right? So I think it's very important that it's not always just the, the Western, you know, American view of everything, or uh, if honestly, I wish we had somebody on the Japanese side of things that we could rope into the conversation, you know, that spoke enough (laughs) English that we could, you know, that's the hard thing is the language barrier. You know, if only, I spoke better Japanese or understood better Japanese I but yeah like I just want to include more people in the conversation and get uh have a more wholesome and inclusive view of all sides of things you know that's what I really appreciate about the Sega guys is that uh you're able to really cover that base of you know the UK side of things and then of course Mel like it's crazy but your experience is like the dream experience that everybody would kind of like to live vicariously it was like what i wouldn't give to have been in your shoes you know and experienced things the way you did but at least i have all your videos to to kind <laughs> of uh yeah exactly live vicariously
1: yeah i'm, I'm putting a sound with a, like I must have been insane because i'm thinking back to like obviously like you're talking like late 94
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know so yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of what i was playing in late 94 i was i was still on like a a Commodore Amiga at that point, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there <laughs> trying to swap discs. I'm playing Street Fighter Two, and I'm swapping four discs to load the next stage in, you know. And it's like oh, you're yeah. sitting at home with Virtua Fighter. It's like that's the kind of the jump that we're talking about. Just un- unbelievable, just to to see that at that time.
2: Yeah, don't think it's lost on me either because. You know, being on YouTube now for as long as I've been, you know, I've had those naysayers who have just come out, oh, you're making this up to, you know, make YouTube videos. And, you know, it makes me realize, you know, how special mm-hmm. that actual time must have been for me to be in that situation because apparently people find it so unbelievable. I'm just a bold faced liar. It was so unbelievable. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, it's, Jeez. it's fun- yeah, it's, it's funny, you know, it's kind of like, wow, you know, people must really think that was something special. So maybe it was something special and I'm just not appreciating it as much as I should. I think you
0: do. Yeah. <laughs> it's obvious you do. Yeah. I mean, I try
2: to, Yeah. Man.
0: <laughs> but yeah, anyway, great hearing from you, Mel. And uh, I'm looking forward to the next time we can do this, but uh, this has been Saturn Dave, Mel, Sega Lord X, and... James the Sega-holic reminding you that you must play your Sega Saturn and uh if you've if you've never played one you absolutely must and if you already have one well you know you know (laughs) you gotta play the darn thing (laughs) uh we hope you have a great one and we'll catch you next time
1: okay thank you very much guys